my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and least understood because it's the most recent. It's the culmination also so far of George R. R. Martin's style honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of Feast for Crows, brings POVs together like a Clash of Kings, and has the setup of a Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time. Join us on one of our social media outlets to become part of the discussion. That includes Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack. We got links in the description if you're watching the video, links in the description if you're listening to the podcast. Either way, you've got access. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe, that's Joe Buckley's show. He calls it Scraps and Scrolls when it's the tandem Valar Reredis read. And check out Nina Friel on Tumblr. That's goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. Goodqueenalley with one L. And this week for Valar Reredis, we have four chapters as per usual. A Ghost in Winterfell is the first one called Winter Falls on Winterfell, a.k.a. A Song of Snow and Murder. Tyrion X, Tyrion 10. <laughs> Tyrion X. X, X. Tyrion 10, the gang gets sold into slavery, a.k.a. in the belly of the yellow whale. Jamie 1, the north of the south, a.k.a. a tree of a thousand ravens in one. And John 10, a red wedding with no deaths, a.k.a. how I married your Magnar. Tyrion 10 and John 10. That's pretty cool. And they're back to back, the brothers together, but not really together. They're very far apart, not just in, in terms of physical distance, but they're still kind of mad at each other, aren't they? Today, Hoster Blackwood, a young student of history, opines on the repeating and bloody cycles of revenge and war that play out over the centuries. As a Blackwood, he's more familiar than most when it comes to long-running feuds, and when Jamie hears him say that countless marriages and attempts at peace have failed to bring Blackwoods and Brackens together, he tells Hoster Blackwood that perhaps the only solution is for one side to wipe out the other. A little too much like your dad there, Jamie. That is the view of a lot of different factions opposing each other today. Even though Tywin's gone, that attitude exists elsewhere. He's certainly not the only one to have that attitude. He's just one of the most severe and forceful about it. In some form or fashion, though, we see that almost everywhere. Enemies that have no chance at reconciliation, often because of extremely old grudges, maybe not as old as Bracken and Blackwood, but still very old. It's rather plain to point to this when talking about Slaver's Bay, right? I mean, we've talked about possible solutions for Marine and the rest, and destroying it entirely might not be ideal, but it might be the only available option. It might be what happens under a similar mindset, regardless of what we want to happen. It's definitely a possibility, a strong possibility. Surely there's no way the phrase will be forgiven in the North, right? Nor will Stannis and the Boltons find accord. Those aren't ancient enemies, but I don't see any peace between them. John is doing his best, but there are Northerners and other men on the wall who don't appear to be budging on the issue of any sort of alliance or friendship with the free folk. Some of them view it as a kill-or-be-killed situation, and John's going to bear that brunt by the end of the book. 
Winter itself, as a representation of the others, wants to wipe out, well, everyone, I guess. Uh, perhaps the best example of there being no chance at peace we can have. It's a bit less direct as some of these human conflicts, but a lot more certain. Speaking of wiping out your enemies, the legacy of the Red Wedding is rather prime today. Shows what happens if you don't quite wipe out all of them. The Freys are openly condemned at Winterfell for their role in it, and the capture of Great John during that helps explain the behavior of his uncles, Crowfood and Horsebane. Lords Bracken and Blackwood hate each other, obviously, but they both condemn the Red Wedding when speaking to Jamie, and they both lost men there, including Lord Blackwood's second son, Lucas. It's less direct for Tyrion, but even his marriage to Sansa was in part arranged because of Rob's death, which Lord Bracken calls murder even now, even as he's on Jamie's side, ostensibly. Likewise, Tywin's legacy is particularly felt in this one. I mean, the Red Wedding, of course, but not just that. Stannis went north in part because Tywin snuck up behind him after allying with the Tyrells. Tyrion thinks of Tywin a lot, specifically, not ruefully for once. He's not mad at his father for once. He actually thinks about some of the things his father taught him in addition to thinking how horrified Tywin would be at seeing his son as a slave in a grotesquerie. That almost makes Tyrion laugh, though. Jamie thinks of his father quite a lot during his chapter as well, where the devastation of the Riverlands, as ordered by Lord Tywin, is felt. Of course, hey, my dad did this, is part of what he's thinking. He comes to break the siege at Riverrun, or at Raventree Hall, after having done Riverrun last book, by offering peace terms, and he sees that it's really bad there, too. There's no food, winter is coming. It, the outlook is grim. And we certainly have some siege and siege-like conditions today. In addition to Raven Tree Hall, we clearly had that there. We have Winterfell, besieged it by snow and waiting for Stannis to perhaps show up and besiege them as well. But as we saw last time, Stannis is sort of besieged by snow himself, though nearby. Tyrion and company are sold in sight of the siege lines outside Marine. Sieges are tough, and there's a moving theme here of finding strength amidst some of the most horrible situations. As everyone worries and stresses inside Winterfell, Theon pushes past a lot of his identity issues. He's like one of the few people going up while everyone else is going down mentally. I mean, I wouldn't call him strong, but he's on the upswing. Tyrion is as clever and focused as we've seen him in this book or ever, even as he's being sold into slavery. And he notably spends less time lamenting over what his family has done to him and his guilt, which recently has, had threatened to overwhelm him to the point that suicide was occasionally on his mind. Jamie as well starts to break free from some old habits. He actually takes note of another woman's attractiveness, unusual given how loyal to Cersei he is in that way. And that's, of course, not the only wedge between him and his sister right now. More immediately and relatedly to having feelings for women other than Cersei, he breaks his habit of extreme caution on campaign by leaving his army to go off with someone he trusts, Brienne. Though, as we know, this is not a time that he should be trusting her. John and quite a few others get some respite actually enjoying a wedding. I suppose this is less about finding strength and more about getting a break. Similar enough, though. But there's something to be said for marriages amidst war, ones that aren't overly forced. I mean, marriage, the marriage, I mean. <laughs> The Magnar then dances in this one. I mean, that's, that's unusual, right? <laughs> the tension is definitely down a notch or two, though it's not gone by any means. Winter is still coming. Snow is still all around them. There's still lots of problems. They're still trying to save humanity. 
but it is a light in the dark. It's a reminder of what is worth saving. It's a reminder that it's not just the people, it's the things that we do. Trying to save what makes us human, love and laughter and fellowship and such. It's important to remind ourselves of what, what's, what needs to be saved. Several different horns play a small role today. Wealthy Giscari often style their hair in the shape of horns. That's a different kind of horn than the horn that's, horns that get blown, but still, Tyrion and company find themselves being sold to such. Sir Kenos of Casey almost sounds the horn of Herrock at Raven Tree Hall right before the drawbridge lowers. We're going to end the last chapter today with two blasts of the horn at Castle Black, appropriately announcing the arrival of Tormund, nicknamed, among other things, Hornblower, while a flint jokes about the horn of Joramin when a horn is heard outside Winterfell. Okay, a ghost in Winterfell. Winter falls on Winterfell, a.k.a. a song of snow and murder. One of the best mystery chapters of the series. The closest thing we get to a whodunit, and it really is very much that. But there's so many other mysteries, too. It's not just the whodunit. In addition to the murders, there's the voices at the tree and Mance's interest in the crypts, not to mention what else he and the Spearwives are plotting. Who's blowing that horn? And who is the hooded man? And alongside the hidden identity of these murderers, Theon continues to struggle with his own identity, but makes major progress, while pretty much everyone else around him is headed in the opposite direction mental health-wise, because, you know, being cooped up inside is something we can all relate to. But being cooped up inside with a murderer or murderers, that's a little different. The closest I've come to that personally is playing Among Us or Clue or watching a movie like Clue or Murder on the Orient Express, something like that. This chapter gives us several related things that we'll be seeing more and more of. Snow, winter, death, deteriorating mental health under such conditions, that kind of thing. I think we're going to see a lot more of it. There's less and less emotional energy available for politeness and just keeping up a, a decent face, you know, not, uh, not snapping at people. A lot of people at Winterfell hate each other in the first place, so they weren't exactly putting a lot of effort into keeping it civil in the first place. So the true feelings are coming out. It's harder to hide, put those masks on when you're rubbed raw and stressed out. It's a recipe for things to start getting ugly or rather uglier. But the phrase in Manderley's and others aren't fighting each other yet. Not quite yet. Soon. (laughs) Someone wants them to, however. The dead man was found at the base of the inner wall with his neck broken and only his left leg showing above the snow that had buried him during the night. Theon, interestingly, is one of the few people whose mental health is on the upswing. Again, it's because the bar is so low that simply getting through a day without severe pain and guilt and fear is an improvement for him. This chapter has a lot of buildup towards him regaining some of that identity. That'll culminate in his final chapter, this book, where the title is actually Theon, the only one in this book that has his name in the title. So it's signifying the completion of that mini arc, I suppose. Not unlike Stannis's campaign, there's a lot of mirroring with what's going on here, even though these guys are stationary. They have their own kind of cold count going on, but they know the, the murders, the deaths rather, are from a murderer or murderers, rather than being able to blame it on the element. So there isn't this sense of, while they're arguing with each other in Stannis's army, they're not worried about them killing each other. It's a hugely different problem. And of course, it's not the only parallel. 
there is going to be more fracturing than we've seen. I said there's not infighting, but we're going to get close to infighting, right? With the burnings, that's, you know, a different version of morale breakdown and, and the thing, the worst things happening because the campaign is, is struggling. A good portion of this chapter is devoted to who is doing the killings at Winterfell, trying to figure all that out. Theon thinking through, suspecting different people. Of course, Theon himself is hauled before the lords as a possible candidate for being the murderer. And they argue about it. And we see some of the anger aimed at each other as they're sitting there talking to Theon and accusing him. They just can't control themselves because of how much animosity is between them. After all, even Lady Dustin calls out Aenys Frey Call, basically saying he's a fool for not realizing that, hey, do you guys not realize that everyone here hates you? <laughs> Are you really not aware of that? Joe writes that this is a little bit of a indulgence for Barbary. She's smart and she knows that their alliance depends on people not turning on the phrase. So yet she's turning on them and telling them that other people are turning on them or about to. So she's sort of not pragmatic with comments like that. But it also just goes to show she can't help herself. She really did lose people at the Red Wedding, even the Rizwells. The Rizwells even speak up about the Red Wedding. Like, we lost men at the Red Wedding too. They don't curse at Anis, but even they bring it up. And the reason that's significant is the Rizwells are the most locked in to being Bolton allies other than Bolton himself. There's really no one closer uh, they're they're tied by marriage. There's a Roos Riswell. It goes to show just how close those, that family alliance is. So if the Riswells are turning a little bit, that's a problem for Roos, a big problem. And it tells him that it might not just be them. If his closest allies are starting to have issues, then what does that say about, say, Manderley? Which is where it goes next, right? None of them really suspect a third party. They don't suspect some... They don't suspect Mance. They don't suspect what it probably is, Mance and the Spearwives. They're thinking, oh, Stannis has some agent inside, or it's Manderly, or it's this Theon. Now, they move on from Theon pretty quickly, rightly so, I suppose. He just doesn't really seem like a good candidate. At the end of the chapter, does make it almost certain that it's Abel Mance and the Washerwomen. But if that's the case, recall that it's not going to be them who kill Little Walder next chapter. And it's his death amongst a couple other things that really forces the issue. It's not just that, but that's a big deal as far as finally having men sent away to go find Stannis. The other major thing is they actually get an idea of where Stannis is, which, of course, they can't go attack him unless they know where he is. So a lot of these things come together. But remember that Walder's going to blame it on Manderly men. And I think that he's doing that because he senses the tension and... He's like, well, everyone's blaming Manderly for stuff, so why don't I pin this murder on Manderly too? They're going to believe it. It's an easy scapegoat, and it pretty much works. Joe and Nina agree. It's almost certainly the Spearwives doing the killing. Mance is, is not doing any of the killing himself. He's maybe directing it. Maybe he might be telling them who to kill. He might not be. Maybe they're just coordinating on it, something like that. But it seems pretty likely that their plan is to create chaos between these two factions. If they can get the two, think of the phrase fighting the Manderleys inside the castle walls, escaping with Arya, well, it won't be necessarily easy, but it'll be a lot easier if they're at it, literally fighting each other. It's really interesting thinking back to when this chapter was new. 
and thinking about where it's at now in terms of the way the average member of the fandom views it or maybe the, the summary view of this chapter. People used to really wonder about this hooded man. And I was one of them. We had, there's all sorts of theories about what he was doing. But I, now I'm at the point where I don't think this hooded man is anybody. He's probably no one. And I don't mean like a faceless man. Because he's just part of the pastiche of Theon wondering who the killer is. And there's really no detail about this character that points him being someone specific. Some people think he might be Harwin. I don't see how he could be Harwin. Harwin is still with the Brotherhood Without Banners. Hal Mollen was one theory I entertained for a while. We haven't heard that name in a while. That's Captain Obvious. Because he's still alive, probably. He might be in the neck or something. We haven't seen him forever. He was, he was in charge of the bones to bring Ned's bones home. And well, the, the bones never emerged from the neck, as Lady Dustin says. So one possibility is that that brought up by Laura Brandos in our Facebook group is that there's a lot of people who would want to check on this Arya, not to see if she's okay, but to see if she's really Arya, because there's a lot of suspicion that she's not. And so they'd need to send someone that would be able to identify her. So that would argue for a former resident of Winterfell, like maybe Hal Mullen, because they need someone who knows what Arya looks like. And there's only so many people that could do that. It still is a mystery, even though I lean towards it being nobody in particular. Because even if we do have this idea of someone checking in on Arya, it doesn't have to be this guy, right? It could be any number of other people. So we'll leave that one on the shelf. It's possible the Hooded Man is, is somebody important. But I've gone through 10 years of thinking about it, and this is where I'm currently at. <laughs> one other theory that was out around the time actually does put the blame on Theon. It's the Theon Durden theory, which is, that's a reference to the movie Fight Club or the, books fight, the book Fight Club, either one. The idea was that Theon is... Becoming someone like he has a split personality, just like in Fight Club, where he doesn't know what he's doing. And, and while he's in his other personality, he's killing people. I really don't think so for this, though. It was a clever idea, but there's just no real evidence of it. He's not, it's not like he finds blood on his hands. Like, how did that get there? You know, there's, there's not even a little, the tiniest clue for that. But I thought it was fun to relay to y'all because it's a neat story, neat theory from back in the day. So we've talked a lot about all the ways the books give us hints as to what winter will be like. And these northern chapters lately are startling because we read passages like this one Ashea is about to read and we think, wait, it's going to be worse than this? Endless, ceaseless, merciless. The snow had fallen day and night. Drifts climbed the walls and filled the crenels along battlements. White blankets covered every roof. Tents sagged beneath the weight. Ropes were strung from hall to hall to help men keep from getting lost as they crossed the yards. Sentries crowded into the guard turrets to warm half-frozen hands over glowing braziers, leaving the wall walks to the snowy sentinels the squires had thrown up, who grew larger and larger every night as wind and weather worked their will upon them. Yeah, so that's intense, right? I mean, you can't even go from one building to another without a rope guide. Like, they have ropes strung up. Picture Winterfell on TV. Imagine going from one side of the yard to the other, not being able to see where you're going. It's that intense, the snow. So, wow, right? That's it's incredible. Nina writes, the snow is the conspirator to the murders. If, if not the cause, in some cases, it is the cause in some cases, right? Because it hides the bodies. It hides the blood. It hides the evidence. And it also hides the explanation. Like they posit that this one Riswell man fell off the wall walk. 
even though it doesn't really make sense because why did he climb the wall walk to pee? Like, why not just go in the yard? It just doesn't make sense. Yet they still just, like, no one wants to think about it. No one wants to face the truth that it was almost certainly a murder. And of course, the murders get more and more blatant and they can't be explained away. Uh, And then, of course, then it comes to a head. This is part of why they start arguing about going and fighting Stannis. Like, why are we staying here? Let's go out and fight Stannis. Let's get it over with. And of course, Lord Locke is like, dude, we don't know where Stannis is. We know he's out there somewhere, but do you see that snow? How are we going to find him? Are you insane? We have to at least know what general direction to march if we have any hope of finding him. And why would you want to go out in that? You know, there's all these different reasons. So, and that's funny because it doesn't sound like Hostine's going to listen because he's going to charge blindly into the snow if the ice lake theory is correct, which I believe it is. And of course, Aenys himself is going to die and uh, off page by riding out to do some scouting. He's going to fall into a pit trap. So, yeah. <laughs> Nina writes, she's inclined to side with Lord Locke here to some extent that the snow is actually helping Stannis's men in some way, not just keeping them from marching on them, but it gives them a common enemy to struggle against. The snow is awful. It's terrible. They're, it's dealing severe damage to them, but they're not fighting each other, which is what's happening in Winterfell. One side is facing hardships, but they're way more determined. The others, they have higher morale. So it's like Stannis's side is in better shape with their disposition, way worse shape with their logistics, but they have better morale. They're more determined. They trust their leadership more, even as their situation is worse. And they're also on the offensive, which gives them being able to act first. The defenders are waiting, not knowing when it's going to happen. Remember, Emma, we've talked about that a lot in a lot of different scenarios. It's not the knowing you're going to die It's the not knowing when. And in this case, it's not death, but battle or maybe death, right? So it's really interesting comparing these two armies. So many advantages are on Roos's side, but none of the human advantages are on his side unless you count numbers. I'm talking about like their morale, the trust in their leadership. Like these men want to follow Stannis, whereas the ones following the Boltons are afraid. Job notes that even the way Lord Locke is talking, it's almost a little treasonous. He's almost saying, he's talking about the way the old gods are acting in the, in the storm. And it's almost a hint that they're punishing the Boltons, that they're the ones who were getting uh, the ire of the old gods for, well, there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case. And it doesn't look good when you have a man saying, oh, you know, maybe they're warmer than we think out there. And then Ramsey and his men go murder this guy in front of everybody. That's terrible for morale. It's that old saying that Tyrion gave us way back. When you tear out a man's tongue, you're saying you're afraid of what he has to say. And that's basically what happens here. They killed that guy because they don't want talk like that messing with their morale. Rather than facing the issue of this morale, they're just trying to shut the talk up. But that doesn't really do the job, does it? It's really interesting to consider where we're at with this, this, this conflict. We got the Stannis campaign. We got the Bolton campaign. And our POVs are Greyjoys <laughs> for both of them. <laughs> our, our insight into both of these sides of the campaign is Greyjoy. I think that's really neat. 
The note about the horses suffering in the blizzard is pretty important. Um, it's it's very symbolic. After all, it was the stables were destroyed by Ramsey when he was sacking Winterfell way back at the end of the Clash of Kings. And so it's a bit fitting that the rebuilt stables collapsed on the Boltons. It's kind of karmic, although the horses really are the ones that suffered the most. This has kind of come back on them. Like Winterfell has rejected them uh, and they had to bring the horses inside, which is just gross. And it makes everyone more uncomfortable because now they're eating and existing amidst a whole bunch of horses who are, you know, doing their business wherever because the horses, that's how they, that's what they do. In addition to the one guy who is, who is said to have jumped, but who was probably pushed, and another guy who was thrown, we are building up to Theon and Jane being the third jumpers of, of a kind. And I guess they at least, Theon sees that, well, I guess you don't automatically die when you jump. So he gets <laughs> the sense that it's possible to survive that jump because guy is seen limping off into the into the snow before, well, the snow covers him. Now let's talk about the horn blasts and the drums that are being played outside. It's another great way to screw with the morale of those inside. They hear the horns and the drums and they think, oh, Stannis is here. They're wrong. Stannis is not there. That's Moore's Umber, aka Crow Food. A couple things about him real quick. He's at least 64 years old, might be 70 He's huge. He's one-eyed. He has a dragon glass eye in place of the missing one. That is cool, right? His own daughter was kidnapped by raiders, which means he really hates free folk, which may or may not become relevant later with all this, you know, free folk alliance and all that. Uh, he's the one that had some dude digging holes out front, and he's the one blowing those horns. Here's a little theory, something to chew on. Way back in the Clash of Kings, don't forget, the Umbers showed up for the harvest feast and so did the Manderleys. And they talked about having to work with the Manderleys. Like Roderick and Lewin were like, you guys need to work together. You Manderleys, you Umbers, you got the trees. They got the shipbuilders, make some ships together. Those ships have been built. We saw that happening. Davos sees it, Wyman tells him about it. So that implies this partnership did happen. And it did seem to be happening at the end of the Clash of Kings. So are the Umbers in league with the Manderleys here? Is Manderly on the inside, doing his thing while Moore's Umber's on the outside, somewhat aware that Manderly's doing stuff on the inside. Are they together? It's entirely possible. After all, Manderly is drawing a lot of attention to himself. He's out there going, ha ha, taunting the phrase, not really making a secret of things. And to me, that's almost like he's trying to draw attention away from everybody else because he knows he's going to get himself killed. He may as well get the most value possible out of that. Bruce Wizrell says the same thing, right? To fight Lord Stannis, we would need to find him. It's similar to Lord Locke. Our scouts go out the Hunter's Gate, but of late, none of them return. That's why none of them are returning, because Moore's Umber's out there and taking them out. So pair that with the murders inside. You've got murders happening outside and inside. And that's where this notion that Stannis has agents within comes from. And they're like, yeah, okay. They get suspicious, and everyone's worried about their neighbor, and it really, really builds. Plus, they're worried about Melisandre. They're not just thinking about Stannis. They're like, she, he's got this red priestess. What's she capable of? They have no idea, but their imaginations are running wild because that's all they've got time to do. They're sitting there. They're waiting. They're thinking. It's not, not terribly healthy. And they're supposed to be all in this together, right? They're supposed to be suffering together to face this common enemy. But George is careful to show how 
there's little bits of friction even on that level where the common men aren't eating very well. They're getting the worst food. Meanwhile, in Stannis' camp, he's not sitting there eating fancy, right? They're, they kind of are all in it together over there. Even though they're arguing, no one's, you know, uh, keeping, being greedy. No one's keeping it all for themselves. They're still, they're, they're, that attitude of facing the problems as a group is more prevalent in Stannis' campaign. So it's a, not just a breakdown along fear and danger, but there's class issues forming as well. Think about what happened at Craster's. All those men were kept in line. They were bad dudes. The Night's Watch vows sort of kept them in line, but it was their brothers that kept them in line more so than anyone else. And when things got really bad at Craster's Keep, all that fell apart. They were no longer afraid of the things keeping them in line because they were starving and afraid. And that's what's happening here. One of the main things keeping people in line is fear of Roos Bolton, right? But if they're more afraid of starving or if they're just so angry because they are starving, then all of a sudden the fear of Roos Bolton, it falls away. It's not nearly as threatening as it used to be. They're like, yeah, Roos is scary, but starving to death is scary too. And that's already happening. They'll take their chances in a group trying to overthrow a bad ruler if they're starving. So that's really bad for Roos because he's, he needs fear <laughs> to be able to control people. If he loses that, what does he have left? Uh, and that is why we see him start to slip a little bit. It's a great example of value of rereading. Because Wyman Manderley, I think when you see Wyman taunting the phrase, when you read it the first time, personally, I had the sense of, oh, he's taunting them, but he's not really admitting it. I didn't get that the insult was rather brazen. In other words, I thought it was kind of an in-joke for the reader to get that Wyman is insulting them, whereas they're not fully grasping it. But on second and third and fourth and fifth, all these rereads I've had over the years, it became clear, no, they know what Wyman's saying. They get the implication quite clearly. He's telling them to their faces, I killed your kin, without quite saying it. He's just, he's like 99% saying, he's got that 1% deniability left. And well. It fell to Roger Riswell and Barbary Dustin to calm them with quiet words. Bruce Bolton said nothing at all. But Theon Greyjoy saw a look in his pale eyes that he had never seen before, an uneasiness, even a hint of fear. So it takes a lot to scare Roose Bolton, right? We were just hearing from Lady Dustin how he doesn't feel fear at all. Well, clearly he fears a little bit. She was exaggerating a little. But we're bordering on what it, whatever it takes to scare him is there. So that says a lot. Yeah, it's funny that they're like, hey, singer, lighten the atmosphere for us. When <laughs> Mance is the one who's coordinating all the murders in the first place, most likely. So, hey, dude, who's the reason we're all upset? You be in charge of calming us down. That's kind of like Alanis Morissette ironic, isn't it? It's not actually ironic, but it's the kind of ironic that even I misuse the word in that way all the time. <laughs> so, yep. Hiring the murderer to bring peace to the people traumatized by the murderers. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? Let's talk about Theon's breakthroughs. He goes to the Godswood, to the Heart Tree. And when he, before that, he's being accused of the murders. And 
Bruce says, you were a hostage here. And he says, yes, my lord, a hostage. In his mind, though, he thinks it was my home, though. Not a true home, but the best I ever knew. Joe wrote in all caps, that's a gigantic stride forward for Theon. Like a few chapters ago already, he, was, he wasn't thinking of it as his home. Now he is. So that's straightforward character development, right? <laughs> it's, and it's very meaningful. I, I feel it, uh, how important that is for him. You know, you can have, there's, it's hard to not have mixed feelings about Theon. But this is, this is good. It's positive. Because this is going to be good for other people. When, when people who have power over others, when they grow less hateful, there's, everyone wins. Even if it's only a little. So here, let's, here, here's him actually at the heart tree. Here's the first quote. The night was windless, the snow drifting straight down out of a cold black sky. Yet the leaves of the heart tree were rustling his name. Theon, they seemed to whisper. Theon. So the telltale word rustling is there again. That's always the clue. We've talked about this before. George doesn't really vary that. It's a distinct indication that the heart tree is speaking. That's something we, it's a pattern we identify in our heart tree series in Religions and Magic. Way back when we did that. This is going to happen again in Theon's Winds of Winter chapter. Though it will be a raven saying Theon, Theon instead of the tree. But in both cases, it's almost certainly Bran. The question, like so many mysteries in this chapter, is why, though? Why is Bran talking to Theon? It's not like he seems to be passing a specific message on. He just says, Theon. <laughs> and then a minute later, he hears Bran. So it's just like, George is telling us that this is Bran. He sees his face a minute later. But why, right? It is at least telling from the identity side of things because he's the only person calling him Theon. <laughs> Everyone else is calling him Theon or Theon, I mean, Theon Turncloak or just Turncloak or Reek. It's almost as if Bran is the only person not disrespecting Theon at every turn, even though Bran's the only one of this group of people who is actually victimized by Theon, the, the one person that has the best reason of all to be disgusted at Theon, yet he's not acting like everybody else. He's not spitting at Theon's name, at least not as far as we can tell. You can't spit through a heart tree, can you? A leaf drifted down from above, brushed his brow, and landed in the pool. It floated on the water, red, five-fingered, like a bloody hand. Bran, the tree murmured. They know. The gods know. They saw what I did. And for one strange moment, it seemed as if it were Bran's face, carved into the pale trunk of the weirwood, staring down at him with eyes red and wise and sad. Bran's ghost, he thought. But that was madness. Why should Bran want to haunt him? He had been fond of the boy, had never done him any harm. Okay, wait, what? Never done him any harm? Okay, Theon, I was with you for a minute there. <laughs> so you're still lying to yourself some. We're making progress, but we're still lying to ourselves. Um, he, he admits, in addition to this, he admits all the people he killed. He seems to somewhat come to terms with that. He names them specifically, which is important. The ones he scapegoated in particular are important. Remember, he kills Bran and Rick and uh, the Miller's boys and then kills all the people that were witness to the fact that it wasn't Brandon Rickon. Farlin, three of his own men, Agar, Jainia Rednose, and Gelmar the Grim. Of course, that was basically Ramsay's idea, but Theon went along with it, so he certainly bears responsibility. And when Bran's presence was in this tree the first time, there was sadness. Theon sensed that sadness. There was crying, as if the tree was crying. We even named the chapter after that. Of course, that was during the wedding. And that's, well, or just after the wedding. You can kind of see maybe why Bran was sad about that or sad about other things. But again, this time, 
It's not so specific. What is, it's almost as if Bran is just trying to contact Theon, just trying to get him to recognize that he's there. Just, just hello, almost. It's like, it's not, it's not a specific message he's trying to pass on. Because if there is a specific message he's trying to pass on, I cannot perceive it. And I, I didn't get much from y'all either in terms of theories on that. So it feels like we kind of all agree on that. This is a strong mystery. What is going on here? Why is Bran and why is Bran trying to talk to Theon? What's the point of this? So some people are wondering how the washerwomen, the spearwives, knew about Theon and the heads and, and taking the heads, or else everybody, or else he, they would laugh at him. Well, I think that's actually pretty straightforward. They they were listening. He was saying all this out loud as he was praying, and they were clearly. They clearly came up on him and were like, hey, who are you talking to? So all we have to do is imagine that they were listening for a few minutes before they said something. So that's pretty straightforward, I think. If there's another way they know, well, I'd like to know because I don't know what that would be. I don't know how else they could know about any of that. <laughs> so why do they want to go to the crypts? It's, it's got this very Bale the Bard feel to it, right? After all, Mance is calling himself Abel, which is an anagram for Bale, the same four letters in a different order. And the whole story of Bale the Bard is that they hide in the crypts, which is what Bran and, and company did way back. So it's almost like they're trying to do that again, hide there during the fallout, maybe hide there with Arya while the two sides kill each other. Maybe they think there's a way out down there. We know there probably isn't, but they don't know that themselves. So that's really cool, but it doesn't fully explain what's going on with them, but it does give us very strong clues um, because there aren't a lot of options. They, you know they want to get out of there and they clearly want to bring fake Arya with them because, well, they do that in the next chapter. Aegon Sixth says, Hooded Manderly, a consideration for the next child <laughs> for our game streams. That's a really good idea. We are playing on, we do, every Friday we do a Crusader Kings game stream, which is, uh, has been modded. So it's very much in the world of Song of Ice and Fire. And we're playing House Manderly. And let me tell you, the puns have been off the chain with playing House Manderly. We've got He Manderly. We got Spider Manderly. We got Mando Manderly. We got I'm a Manderly. It's super, super macho. It's so it's yeah. endless. The chat just goes off with suggestions. And here's a really good one too. Hooded Manderly. That's awesome. <laughs> Tree Girl and Nina both noticed something here, a, a little bit of symbolism that while Wyman Manderly was taking all sorts of bites out of Frey's with the Frey pies, even, even Winter took a bite out of Hostine Frey when he lost an ear. You're like, well, how's that a bite? Because it's frostbite. hey oh, <laughs> That's what cost him an ear. That's pretty cool. Sophia from Flick says, arguably, they are trapped inside the castle, not safely. There's only one gate that they can open. Even the main gate is iced shut. Only the hunter's gate functions properly. And they've got this drumbeat sounds that are really similar to the Red Wedding. It's like they're trapped inside by what they've done. They violated guest right. They violate Kinslade. They did all this stuff. The old gods are mad and they're trapped inside Winterfell. Winterfell is trapping them, not saving them, not protecting them. Great way to put it. I like that a lot. Beautiful symbolism. Uh, Tree Girl also suggests it's a little bit like the Mines of Moria. George R. R. Martin, monstrous fan of Lord of the Rings. So I definitely agree there's a strong 
possibility here. Minds of Moria has drums, and it's the same situation where uh, there's a bunch of people trapped in a spot where they doesn't seem to where there's anything any way to get out. Also, Sophia suggests calling this one CSI Winterfell. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. Stefan B says this is a lot like Agatha Christie murders, which is something else that George is surely, surly? surely familiar with. She was a very famous mystery writer. People still buy her books. They're still adapted and things like that. Something she wrote about somewhat regularly was a murder mystery that had a closed-off location with lots of people that have motives to be the killer. And that's absolutely what we have here. Oberon19 and Stefan B. also teamed up for a great take here that I missed that's really good. The notion of snow coming over the walls is very much foreshadowing whites coming over the walls in a, because the same language was used by Jojen Reed when he dreamt of the sea flooding over the walls in advance of Theon's taking of Winterfell. So now we have that same language, but it's snow coming over instead. Great catch, y'all. I totally agree. It certainly fits with what we expect from the future. But let's move on. Tyrion 10. The gang gets sold into slavery, a.k.a. in the belly of the yellow whale. It's supposed to be Jonah and the whale, but instead we have Jorah. Meh. The tale of Jonah, not the whale's tale, includes the city of Nineveh, a sinful city. Marine surely qualifies as such. I mean, it's what's happening outside the walls at the mouth of the Skahazadam that's the problem most of all, though, because that's where the slavery is. That's, I mean, what's more sinful than that? Selling of people. And we have become accustomed to it in slavers based somewhat. I mean, a huge portion of the slave trade in this area is luxury, right? These are seeing people as luxury goods is somehow even harder for some of us to understand or to wrap our heads around. There's kind of a misleading tendency for when we picture slavery, we picture as we, we mostly picture, at least I do, maybe I shouldn't be speaking for y'all, but toiling in mines or on fields. Like that's the most basic I mean, as an American, that's what I think about from slavery in the U.S. was a lot of it was plantation slaves. But that's not nearly all. It's not just all manual labor. This isn't a real situation, of course, but it's not out of line with some of the world, worst examples of real-world slavery throughout human history, where it is a thing about pleasure and luxury goods and not for labor, which isn't, I'm not saying one's better than the other. It's all slavery. It's all horrible. But for completeness' sake, for understanding what's happening, the clearest example of that we've seen to date on a regular basis is the bed slave, which is disturbing, but expected, right? It's not like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they thought of that. This chapter gives us new forms of horror that we may never have thought of before. People who are, not, who are so rich that they buy, thing, they buy people just to watch them die in creative ways or to breed them, to resell them. I mean, right off the bat, we've all heard the phrase, treating people like objects, but it's never quite so close to being as literally true as it is here. As we've noted before, it can be misleading if you look at numbers without context. You know, the reason Tyrion has so much screen time in this book is he's an observer of so many things he has very little control over. Danny has less total screen time by quite a bit, really, but she drives to action almost entirely when she's around. Tyrion is an observer a lot more often. Tyrion was our window for a lot of Volantis. Quentin gave us some of that too. With that came, in, came setting up a lot of the R'hllor situation, John Connington, young Aegon. Tyrion, of course, did have a big hand in that arc by arguing for them to go west first. 
But other than that, he was mostly having conversations and learning and not actually changing things, just giving information to the reader. Like before that, he was riding in a litter with Illyrio, just drinking constantly. And that was really fun because we learned so much, but he wasn't driving the action. That could, there's a lot of different characters that could have been in that role, getting the same info from Illyrio. This is perhaps never more true than here when he's literally a slave. Slaves driving the action? I mean, when does that happen? Especially more than queens like Daenerys. But Tyrion, it's a real reversal here. It's a real subjugation of expectations because this is ostensibly the point at which he should have the least agency. But he actually manages to manipulate events quite a lot. He actually moves things and and gets people to change their mind and impacts how they think when he's in chains. And that's a really interesting contrast to the state of mind he was in when the book began. He was miserable and aimless when with Illyrio and his slaves, who aren't called slaves, but we know what they are. But now that he's one of those two, it's totally different. Here's the first line. Lot 97, the auctioneer snapped his whip. Let's not bypass that those two now being named Lot 97 is obviously meant to remind us that Melisandre was also once a lot. She was Lot 7, which is where we get confirmation that she was a slave, although we don't know exactly where she was sold. Still, that's a huge number too, 97. I mean, that means 96 lots were before those two. They were sitting there waiting in that humidity. What an awful scenario. We know being the subject of ridicule and laughter is Tyrion's worst nightmare right? He hates that. It was imbued in him by his father who contributed to it. He didn't laugh at him, but he certainly mocked him and was constantly disapproving. So now he is that. He's being treated as an object. He is specifically something to ridicule. That's what he's being sold as. That's his price. He is being sold as something ridiculous. So he doesn't have time to despair or to feel the sting to his pride. He has to be focused if he's ever going to escape. He comes alive here. And it's not entirely about him. He also feels responsible for Penny and a little bit for Jorah, though he doesn't actually have responsibility for Jorah. He still decides to save his life. It's really interesting how little fear and despair Tyrion feels here. He's very active, very alive, very focused. It's, it's super interesting, I think. It's like he's at his best when he's got the least amount of room to maneuver. Maybe it's a statement about wealth a little bit. Maybe George is saying, look, when Tyrion's got everything he needs in life, he's kind of a waste. He's just chilling and not doing anything interesting. But when he's got to fight and struggle, that's when he's, uh, that's when he's really interesting and intel- at his most intelligent and clever. So one of these things that Tyrion has going for him, well, his two companions, this is not exactly their skill set. Penny was showing Tyrion a lot on the boat. She taught him a lot about how to survive and how to exist as someone of their stature. But right now, it's his turn. They don't have this skill set of understanding powerful people. He's got the kind of pride. He's been around ultra-rich people his whole life. He's got some insight into the type of person they are. He knows ultra-rich people. And that's a core message of Slaver's Bay in general. Wherever you go around the world, wherever there's power, kingdoms, empires, the Game of Thrones is being played, evil is being done, and things like that. Tyrion brings a unique perspective here because we've seen these characters before. We've seen a lot of these very specific slave owners, in fact. But he is way more 
practiced in understanding who they are. Daenerys is, is not. She's young and doesn't have this kind of life experience yet. She's learning it, but Tyrion's already there. This is something that is rather clear as to something that she could use a lot of help with and that he, more so than anyone, could be the one to provide it. We haven't actually returned to Marines since Danny's wedding, but this chapter underlines how quickly that marriage is changing things. This slaving happening here is as a result of that peace deal. Remember, the deal was, okay, we're going to go back to slaving, except in Marine. And Danny's going to, in her next chapter, complain. She's going to be like, those jerks, they're slaving where I can see it. They're, the letter of the law is being upheld because technically it's not in Marine, but she's like, I can see them. They're right there slaving. And it really pisses her off because, you know, none of these, these negotiations were not in good faith. They're using every opportunity they can to break the deal without actually breaking the deal. And Danny's realizing that she should have maybe seen more of that coming, which is exactly the kind of thing Tyrion would, again, help her with. And another one of Danny's mistakes is perhaps shown here. Um, something else that maybe could have helped her had she taken more of their money. You see how awful these people are. They're, they're so wealthy that they're still just blowing cash on things that no one needs. I mean, again, these are luxuries. They're buying these slaves. And of course, that's going to bother the hell out of Danny. And if we look farther ahead, well, this is part of how we're going to be able to justify as readers and within Danny's mind destroying all this because that might be how it all goes and seeing all these awful people and this just, how could this ever be fixed you can't negotiate with this you can't reform this if that's the conclusion we come to and I'm kind of there if not all the way there then what else can you do besides destroy it it's kind of rotten to come to that conclusion but call a spade a spade if that's the only conclusion then that's the only conclusion so it's not just goods, it's not just luxury goods that these people are being sold as. It's, it's like they're perishable goods. Like they can do whatever they want with you. The, the, the auctioneer right here, it's a little bit under the radar, but he says, you can do this, you can do that. You can have them joust, you can do that. You can have them in a folly. Well, it's another small case of George gives us the answer before giving us the, the riddle. We don't know what a folly is yet. We don't find out what a folly is for another few chapters when. His daughter's going to explain to Danny what a folly is. But a folly includes the death of the participants while everyone laughs. So the Oxter's like, hey, buy these two dwarfs and have them killed in front of people. That's what he's saying. He pays 5,000 silver for it, <laughs> for this. The right to just have them murdered eventually. Talk about extravagance, right? I mean, also, among other things, it's gross and, and murderous, but they just have all this extra money. But Brown Ben goes and he starts bidding and the bidding gets above his comfort zone. He's like, okay, never mind. Then he loses way more than that auction price gambling on Syvas, playing Tyrion. And this may seem a bit over the top, but I have some personal life experience here. Remember, I was a pro gambler myself for 10 years. And this is very much in line with how people with lots of money and big egos behave. They, it's, it's a term called chasing losses. Actually, you don't even have to be, have a big ego and a lot of money to do this. Everyone does this to some extent. It's a mindset that comes when you're down, you've lost money, and you're trying to get even. And people will go really hard to try to get even to the point where they end up losing way more because <laughs> they're not playing very well. You, you take more risks and more gambles and you find yourself in a bigger hole. Sometimes you're down because you're having bad luck. Sometimes you're down because the other player is better than you. 
<laughs> Sometimes it's both. And that's probably what's happening here. Although there's not that much luck in Saivas. It's closer to chess in that there isn't much luck at all. There is a little bit. But Ben should have retreated from this battlefield way sooner than he did. There's an old saying in poker, if you can't spot the sucker at the table, it's probably you. Ben was the sucker at this table. And that effect is magnified at a Saivas table because at a poker table, there might be six or 10 people. There's two people at a Saivas table. So there's a, it's, it narrows it down who the sucker might be. So he lost like 25,000 silver or gold or whatever it was, which is a monstrous sum. Because what happened was they play for 5,000 and Tyrion beats him. Then they play for 10,000 and Tyrion loses. Then they play three more times and Tyrion wins all three of those. But the style of play is more important than this wagering scenario here. So let's talk about that. Here's Tyrion's read on Ben's personality based on how he plays. Hungry, but wary this one. The sellsword was nearly as bad a player as the Yunkish Lord had been, but his play was stolid and tenacious rather than bold. His opening arrays were different every time, yet all the same, conservative, defensive, passive. He does not play to win, Tyrion realized. He plays so as not to lose. It's an extremely good description of why Ben switched sides. Not because he thought the young guy were going to win. He's like, oh, I want to be on the winning side. But because he saw failure on Danny's side, it's a subtle difference. It sounds like the same thing, but it's not. Because if you miss that difference, you won't be able to predict his behavior. Uh, that granular decision-making comes down to that. I just want to say right here, uh, you really, it really comes across when George is writing about Saivas uh, that he was really big chess player. That he, we learned he posted about it recently because of the Queen's Gambit about how he used to run tournaments and that's how he was working for the weekend. So yeah, it just really comes through. I am spacing out on the name. Oh, Unsound Variations is the name of a short story. I believe it's in Dream Songs 2, which is George's uh, chess story. He wrote a story, um, like a sci-fi story um, about chess players. And it's really cool. So you, if you read that, you can see the jargon. You can tell. It's so clear. It's like, boy, these are terms that clearly only a chess player would use. They're just like really deep into that lingo. So yeah, good call, Shea. Uh, so yeah, so Ben switched sides because he saw losing on one side, not because he smelled the winning on the other side. And yes, Tyrion notes, yes, Ben is hungry. He does have ambition. Else he'd never have risen to the top of the sellsword company in the first place. But he values his life more than his ambitions. That's something about Brown Ben Pum that we know. Yes, he's ambitious, but he's also cautious. He's not the old, bold sellsword. He's the old sellsword. And Ben will make the point in his next chapter, Danny's next chapter, that is, that gold isn't worth anything if you're dead. And he thinks his odds of dying are larger with Danny's side. He's not sure what side's going to win. He just sees more of a chance of losing on one. It's not complicated at all when you look at it that way. It's actually quite predictable. And we ha just like we hadn't seen these different people, all these power players, all these slavers from anyone's point of view but Danny, now we're seeing Brown Ben Plum's point of view from Tyrion's instead of Danny's point of view. And that's also very different because not only is Tyrion a, probably a better judge of character at this point, but he knows who Brown Ben Plum is, at least as far as his house goes. He doesn't know him personally, but he knows Plum's. He knows Plum's are Westermen. And that, as a Lannister, gives him a potential in route. 
or it makes him screwed because Plum will go sell him to Cersei. But he's aware of that possibility and he trusts his own ability to talk Ben out of doing that. But more importantly, Round Ben Plum was putting on airs for Danny. He's like trying to act like a supplicant, you know, until he switched sides, obviously. But with Tyrion, Brown Ben Plum isn't hiding who he is. He's not hiding his nature. When Tyrion sees that look in his eyes and is like, oh, ooh, I don't know if I want this guy to buy me after all. Danny doesn't have those kind of reads. She doesn't have that kind of life experience yet. She's much younger. So this is, again, yet another example of, of foreshadowing Tyrion's value to her, sniffing out things like this. Tyrion may have predicted Ben leaving ahead of time. I think we even said that at the time. Yezan, too, thinking about Yezan just for a second, as gross as he is, he's clearly not an idiot. He also knows that Ben tried to win him at auction. So he saw the guy who tried to bid for Tyrion at the same time he was now is coming in to try and win Tyrion at gambling. So Yezan's like, what does he want with Tyrion? Why does he want Tyrion so badly? Now we know why he wants him so badly. Ben was planning on killing Jorah and giving his head to Danny as a wedding gift, though I don't think that's a misread of what Danny wants there. I don't think Danny would have been like, oh, good. Also, he was going to take Tyrion to Cersei, as Tyrion was worried about, which would have been pretty wild, right? Tyrion gets all the way to within sight of Meereen only to <laughs> head right back to Westeros. <laughs> it's like, I, I could see Meereen, but now we're leaving. Here's a great one-liner. His thoughts flash back to the beginning of his journey when his most pressing problem had been deciding which wine to drink and his mid-morning snails. Yeah, it's almost as if his attitude in viewing the world as a joke is pr- protecting him here. It's like his, his, he thinks of everything as a joke so he doesn't take it seriously and that's helping him here because if he were to really grasp the situation he was in, it might break him. Like it seems to have broken Jorah and possibly Penny. Understandably, like I'm not calling them weak for that. Uh, Tyrion is the exception here. And Tyrion's journey has been so amazing. I mean, the Bridge of Dream, the Valyrian Roads, Valyria itself he saw, the Roin, all these haunting ruins. I mean, it's incredible. And along the way, he's had a lot of internalized story to tell. His father, Shay, Jamie, and Tysha being the main people he thinks of, and I guess Cersei as well. But he, as we introduce this chapter, we mentioned that these things aren't really haunting him too much this chapter, a little bit. A little bit. But with his father, he's more just like thinking of things his father said. Like when he hears about the pale mare, he thinks of his father's advice saying, oh, disease could wipe out an army quicker than any battle he had learned from his father, right? That's, there's no rancor or animosity attached to that memory of Tywin. It's just good advice. Like, okay, I learned something about military from my dad. And this is actually... Perhaps the only chapter, we'll we'll have to do a little additional research on this, but he doesn't think about Taisha at all, either directly or indirectly. He doesn't even think the phrase wherever whores go, which is a kind of a, kind of his mantra for the book. He does recall that his father said a Lannister is worth 10 times more than anyone else. And again, that's that's not really a rueful thought. It's just like something he thinks of in the moment and he uses it as a strategy and, you know, to, to talk to the crowd and to try to manipulate them. He does think of Shay, but only a little. And kind of like how Theon is slowly accepting certain truths that he had been not accepting. Tyrion's doing some of the same here. He's accepting 
what he did with Shay. Just a little bit. It's a slight hint that he's like, okay, I did that. It wasn't her fault, right? He doesn't come out and say that. But I get that sense that he's starting to accept that she had so little agency in all this that it wasn't just to murder her necessarily. Now, speaking of his father, it's interesting that he doesn't curse his own father, but he does curse Penny's father for teaching her to behave and to be so meek here. Now, this is where Tyrion is, it's, it's bitterness more than it is rational because her way of life, the way that her father taught her was very valuable to them when they were on the Celestory Corrin. Fitting in, being what people wanted them to be, being small, proverbially, not literally, because obviously they're small literally. I mean, like not drawing a lot of attention to themselves and only making people laugh, like being an object of humor and not being drawing attention for being something that people want to be superstitious about or be angry towards. Just try to be as proverbially small as they are literally. This bothers Tyrion, but he doesn't realize how much it saved their lives earlier. Now, though, at least what's on his side is he's right that his attitude is the thing that's going to have a chance to save them. Him being focused, him beefing himself up, acting more important, that's actually going to help them. It's going to help them survive. What's funny, too, is a little more irony, maybe, (laughs) is that if I were Tyrion's father, I would be really proud of him for how tough-minded he is in this situation, how he's not letting all this break him, how he's not showing fear or despair as he's literally being sold. Of course, Tywin would just be embarrassed by the whole thing. And that's just another reason to hate Tywin. I mean, being embarrassed is fine, but if that's the only thing you're feeling, then... And Tyrion tells John way back in the Game of Thrones in his second chapter, if I had been born a peasant, they might have left me out to die or sold me to some slaver's grotesquerie. And here we are. That's exactly what's happened. He's been sold directly to a slaver's grotesquerie. And, well, yeah, it is grotesque. And there's even more fulfillment here in the feast itself. When he had attended Joffrey's wedding and first seen Penny and Oppo, Tyrion had been commanded by Joffrey to joust with them. And he said, well, only if you joust with me, and because I'm the only one you can, I mean, you're the only one I can beat. And then Joffrey poured wine on him, right? And then we get to this scene where he's told by nurse, don't spill any wine or it'll go bad for you. And of course, so much of this is an extension of the Purple Wedding because that's why he had to flee. So <laughs> he had to be Yezan's cupbearer. Oh boy, oh boy. Just Tyrion being a server has got to be a big, strange change for him. I mean, he's been, you know, ultra rich his whole life. How many times has he ever even taken notice of who's been serving his wine? Now he's got to be that person. So really, it might do him some good to see what it's like to live on the other side of things. It might give him some good perspective. Because Danny's had that. Danny was sold. And that's part of what has, that, that informs her character. She knows kind of what it's like you know to some degree. Undercover boss. <laughs> undercover <laughs> lord. <laughs> I do like the clever line when he says, I bid 10,000 silvers for myself. I'm good for it. I am. I am. My father told me I must always pay my debts. Because that's really clever, right? It's a smart way to communicate who he is to Westerosi. Joe Buckley calls it the Westerosi bat signal. That Only a Westerosi would see that, but they'll see it brightly, right? That is a very identifiable phrase, not only for a Westerosi, but for a plum who is a house in the Westerlands. Good writing, good cleverness by Tyrion. It's maybe one of the most simple examples to point to of how old Tyrion coming back. Clash of Kings style Tyrion when he's constantly thinking and really good at it. 
Jorah, meanwhile, just seems quite broken. Tyr- uh, while Penny is frozen in fear, Jorah's just gone inside. The, the news that Danny has married his daughter has just broken him more so than slavery, it seems. And that just goes to show you the depths of his, his feelings. As much as I don't like Jorah that much, wow, you really got to have intense feelings to feel that way. And boy, was he lying to himself. He was never going to marry her. She was never going to marry him. I mean, to him, this is some, 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 he lost something by her marrying someone else. Nah, she was never, he was holding out hope she would do multiple, multiple husbands and everything though. So he really was, was lying to himself. Now, why does Tyrion save Jorah? That's really interesting. I, I asked a lot of y'all about that. I got a wide variety of answers and it, it's not certain. One thing I like to point to is well, Tyrion's old line about having a soft spot for crippled bastards and broken things. Jorah's pretty broken right now as far as people that goes. And maybe there's a little bit of pragmatism on Tyrion's side here, thinking maybe Jorah could be useful to them escaping later. I think, like that. I think, yeah, that, that he thinks he'd be useful and that in general, he's useful. He's big. Yeah, he'll owe him a favor. He's like, I saved you. Of course, if Jorah may be like, I don't Yeah, Tyrion's so tiny. Yeah, I, just, I feel like it's good to have a big brute like Jorah around. He's my bear. Yeah, he really kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know Lannisters and their bears. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, some of it is kindness slash pity. Some of it, I think, is a little bit. You got to give Tyrion a little bit of credit here for this this level of compassion, uh, even if it's even if some of it's pragmatism, even if a lot of it's pragmatism, because he's certainly takes some responsibility for Penny, even if it's a different level of instinct. So I do give him some credit here. I, this is this this Tyrion version of Tyrion is a lot more fun to read than even though this scenario is not so fun to read. By, by the way, <laughs> I think part of why he would feel bad for Jorah is that Tyrion can relate to being like a sad sack of a man. Yeah, he was very recently in a similar yeah. spot. All, all, sort, sort of Kinda over still a woman is, too. but yeah. Yeah. Being in exile. Yeah, a lot of, they do have more things in common. We talked about that back Widow of the Waterfront when they were first together, that they do actually have a lot in common that they don't like to admit. The slave mark here, instead of a, instead of a tattoo or something like that, a brand was a really common. Instead, you have these Fancy golden collars, which Tyrion is like, okay, that's actually pretty good because it's not permanent. It's something you can actually remove. And it's another sign of his strength that he's actually able to find positive things to, to look at positively amidst so much horror. But also little bells, though. I wonder if that's meant to have any symbolic meaning that, the, that they are all wearing little bells that tinkle. It's almost like they've been defeated in a sense. But that might just be, hey, bells are everywhere. Another just really disturbing moment comes when Sweets tells them that Yezan got some awful disease in Zathorios, and they say, so deny him nothing, because if you can make him forget that he's dying even for a minute, he'll be very grateful. And the implication of deny him nothing has a, a distinct sexual overtone to it. And a guy who is, looks like that, who is that gross, who is that greedy, who has a disease from Zathorios also? Yikes. Like, this is worse than Jabba the Hutt, but that is who comes to mind. A really gross crime boss type guy that treats people like objects. and Yeah. So talk about Tyrion serving as an observer. I mean, he's just watching all these awful people party and drink and be awful. We've seen these characters before, but inside Marine, and again, this is different because it's, it's Tyrion, quote, looked at everything and everyone, which 
not just the slaves and the people, but the siege lines. And Tyrion has a better understanding of military stuff than Danny does at this point, too. Now, he's not an expert, but he's been in a lot of battles. Danny's been in a couple, too, but he was clearly brought up by someone that has a lot of experience where Danny is learning as she goes. Some camps were orderly, with the tents arrayed around a fire pit in concentric circles, weapons and armor stacked around the inner ring, horse lines outside. Elsewhere, pure chaos seemed to reign. The dry, scorched plains around Marine were flat and bare and treeless for long leagues, but the youngest ships had brought lumber and hides up from the south, enough to raise six huge trebuchets. They were arrayed on three sides of the city, all but the riverside, surrounded by piles of broken stone and casks of pitch and resin, just waiting for a torch. (laughs) Just waiting for a torch, yeah. So compare that to like the Golden Company's very orderly, disciplined camp or Jamie's campaign where he sends out scouts, even though there's no armies in the field to oppose him. That kind of discipline compared to this These are not war leaders. These are slavers playing at war. And this lack of discipline, this sloppiness, this expectation, this arrogance that they're just going to win is overwhelming here. And that last line really says it all. A cast of pitch and resin just waiting for a torch. Yeah, the whole thing is going to go up. And we're reminded that the masters destroyed the olive groves and other trees to deny Danny wood and food for her siege. It, yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. It's the same kind of arrogance. They didn't, they didn't care about who suffered because of that. It's about the possession and the power. And it's ridiculous, right? These characters are silly. They're not supposed to be otherwise. We're not supposed to look at the girl general and the little pigeon and be like, to be intimidated. We're not even supposed to think anyone's to be intimidated. No one has been. The sellswords laugh at them. We're supposed to laugh at them. We're supposed to be disgusted by them as well, but we're supposed to laugh at, at that at the same time. And they're not capable. We're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to really be afraid of them either, just as the characters aren't. So this is all battle of fire set up. And you can see that while, why Barristan has a point. He's like, look at them. Let's attack. What are they going to do? They're not going to band together. They have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> Let's go get them. Let's not sit here while the pale mare kills us. Those, are, those guys are weak. Attack them. And of course, Barristan knows war better than anyone in this vicinity. Real briefly, too, more extension of Danny's story here. We see some sadness. The person who is sold right after Tyrion and Penny, it's another young girl, stripped naked and sold and it's like an Eroa. This is another Eroa. Danny thinks how she made 10,000 Eroas. Well, there's one of them. Lot 98. And she can't do anything about it. And she's right. Danny's like, I wanted to save them all, but I can't. She's powerless to stop it because there's just too many of them. And this one's happening inside of her walls. But she's right. She's not even aware it's happening. She, she can guess at it because she can see the slave marks. There must be young girls being sold because everyone else is being sold. But specifically, she doesn't know this girl. She doesn't know her plight. She just knows that there are people out there who have been enslaved. She can't save them all. And she hates that. Uh, Another little quick uh, miscellaneous note here. Tyrion lies to Penny. Look, golden collar. You know, they're (laughs) going to protect you. (laughs) They're treating you well. But of course, we know that's not true because we've seen how they treat luxury goods. They're willing to just throw them away at their cost because it's all spent for their pleasure. But 
he also talks about the Valyrian glyphs on the collar, which is one of the details he points to to show how fancy it is. And that is a reminder, Nina caught this, that when Danny was married, she was given a heavy golden torque emblazoned with ancient Valyrian glyphs too, which was kind of similar. Danny herself liked it at first. Then she realized how similar it was to a golden collar because Drogo's slaves also wore golden collars. Yeah, not actually so good. Also at the feast, uh, besides the girl general, whose name is Malaza, we had the tattered prince that was there. Tyrion doesn't know who that is, but he was there um, along with Brown Ben Plum. There was a two-headed slave that has filed teeth and that uh, makes me think of Melis the Monstrous and the city of Mantaris that has some two-headed people. Mm. <laughs> and this slave is from Mantaris. Sophia from Flickr writes that Tyrion likens how people enjoy the dwarf joust way out here, uh, just, way more out here, just as much as they did back out in, back in Joff's wedding, aka the purple wedding. And there's another little tie-in, which is that when they perform the joust, Yurkaz's face actually turns purple because he's laughing so hard. <laughs> Just like Joffrey's face turns purple when he drinks the wine. And well, Yurkaz doesn't die during this feast, but he's going to die next week, you know, when he gets trampled, when Drogon shows up at Dad's next pit. Sorry about your luck, Yurkaz. A couple of y'all pointed to a really important line, and I was thinking about this one too. I was thinking about where to put it in this chapter breakdown. Well, I put it at the end, right here. Last comment about this chapter, the line, contempt, the universal tongue. Yeah, because there's so many different languages flying around. Terry doesn't understand what's being said always, but you can read contempt in someone's eyes. In fact, I once read a book on relationships from, written by a, psychologist, or a psychiatrist and some researchers who, did, who studied facial expressions. They identified broke it down into 72 distinct facial expressions that people have. The biggest indicator uh, that a relationship is going to fail, and they studied this for a long time, a decade of research of, of, of new couples, the number one signal from facial expressions that a relationship was going to fail was disgust, which is pretty much contempt. That's the same thing. Those are, those are synonyms. So if, you, if, if one or both members of a couple roll their eyes at each other regularly or express disgust, Probably not going to last. That's, that's a bad, bad sign. And the reason I bring that up here at the end is because there's a lot of contempt on display in Jamie One, the North of the South, a.k.a. a tree of a thousand ravens in one. Nicely placed right after his brother's chapter. I'm very much enamored of this choice for a chapter location, you know, the geographic location as well, because a massive portion of A Song of Ice and Fire is told in King's Landing and the Riverlands but this is our first chapter in either of those locations since A Feast for Crows, which is, you know, we're pretty deep into this book and it's a big book. It's the biggest of them all. So clever of George to ease us back into the South with a location that's kind of Northern, right? And locked into this rivalry so ancient, it predates accurate records. So whew, indeed, as George writes for Jamie's first line. Raven Tree Hall was old. And Jamie has the eye of a trained commander and he notes the square towers here, something no one builds with anymore. They don't do that anymore if they have battles in mind. I mean, you might build a square tower if you're just building like a 
some other kind of tower that has no wars in mind. But he also takes note that this place is called Blackwood Vale, yet there's no wood. So these two things together, there's a description that tells us how old it is or a couple descriptions, plus he just flat out says it. So it's just a lot of initial effort to just point out that this place isn't just old. It's real old. It's ancient. It's sometimes easy to forget that the Blackwoods aren't probably natives of the Riverlands. They probably came from the north and moved here a long time ago, prehist- in somewhat prehistoric times, sort of like how the Manderleys went from south to north. The Blackwoods went from north to south, though well before the Manderleys made their move. This is something we discuss in our Blackwood two-part series. Well, in part one, the ancient history stuff is covered. So plug for that. And fittingly, the episode and the follow-up, Blackwood 2, was co-written by Joe Buckley, who has a few things to say about the castle. And it's another good time to plug his book, Great Castles of Westeros. The Blackwoods have been a major part of the Riverlands storyline since the beginning. Uh, Titos was cited as one of the heroes of the early battles, as the man who rescued Edmure from captivity before he was eventually taken captive again. <laughs> and we, we got to remember that the Blackwoods aren't an obvious big player. Uh, they're not like a, they don't stand out as being really powerful. They are powerful. And they have a lot of prestige because of, well, Westerosi House's respect, ancientness, being old, carries a lot of weight to it. And they were once kings, which is also a big deal. They care about that sort of thing. This is also really relevant to talking about topics within the Dance of the Dragons. When we get to the show House of the Dragon, there's probably going to be some Blackwood action. We got some characters that have relationships here and there. Some, some secondary characters are Blackwoods, like Red Rob Rivers, Alice Ann Blackwood. I, I, I hesitate to even call her a secondhand because she might be a top-tier character. We'll have to see how they go. Although she, we probably won't see her in season one. Bloody Ben Blackwood as well. I mean, there's a lot of potential for some really interesting Blackwood characters in House of the Dragon. So I'm really looking forward to that possibility, though. Don't want to get my hopes up too much on like all of them being on screen. And probably maybe only get one of those three. <laughs> but maybe we'll get them all. So there's a lot to do. There's a lot of history here, not just for the series, but for other Game of Thrones content. That doesn't even include the fact that Brendan Rivers, Bloodraven, is a Blackwood. Um, so if you were to like add up all the scripted episodes History of Westeros has done, there's an awful lot of Blackwood content beyond just those two Blackwood episodes because all these Bloodraven stuff constantly ties into it. We talk about them a lot in the dance. Yeah, it, it just pops up a lot. I, I could shout out a lot of our own episodes, but I think you guys kind of have an idea already. And Bloodraven, I mean, he's so important too. Like his story hasn't fully been explored within the series. It's, it's a lot of it's kind of, the profile is raised by, well, people like us. And he might be saving the world, right? He might be orchestrating saving the world. He's the guy training brand and all that. So we got to be on the lookout for some clues here and, and seeing maybe the, the influence and, and what's going on. Uh, he talks about in brand three, or was it brand two? doesn't really matter. He, he talks about how people are still named for him. Brendan. And multiple Brendans come up in this chapter. First of all, they talk about the Blackfish who was probably named for Brendan. That was specifically raised in Brand's chapter, who's not here. You know, Jamie asks about the Blackfish. Do you have him here? And they're like, nah. And that makes sense. Why would Blackfish go to a siege? I'm going to go hang out in Raven Tree Hall to hide where they have no food and they're under siege. That's a terrible place to hide. <laughs> and why would he go to Jonas Bracken, who is switched sides? 
So, yeah. So Jamie has to ask, but he's not expecting much. And yeah. But Brendan Blackwood is also the heir to Raven Tree Hall. Arguably, that's who Jamie should have taken as a hostage instead of this Hoster Blackwood kid. Which, by the way, these names really tell you where the loyalties are. Hoster Blackwood, Brendan Blackwood. You got Hoster Tully, Brendan Rivers, <laughs> Brendan Tully. Yeah, these names are very telling. Interestingly, too, we wonder about, we make a big deal out of how he's the last one to surrender. Titus is like, I, you know, I held out longer than anyone else. And Jamie gives him credit for that. But it, it and I, I give him credit for that too. But the cynical side of me is like, yeah, but he would have surrendered sooner if it hadn't been his pride, <laughs> right? It was because the black, because the Brackens have them besieged. He didn't want to surrender to the Brackens. Had Jamie shown up earlier, they might not have been the last to surrender. It's just that they didn't want to surrender to the Brackens. So maybe don't give them too much credit for that. But some still, because it looks good. It's good optics, even if the, the reasons behind it aren't quite what they, we make of them. And that tree, though, one of the great features of Raven Tree Hall is this really cool tree. That's something we spend a good deal talking about, not only in our Werewoods episode, but the Blackwoods episode, too. Especially imagining what it was like when this tree was alive because it was once alive. It was, this castle was built when it was alive and the Bracken supposedly poisoned it according to Titos. And well, how do you do that? What poison did they kill it with? I would like to know that. Maybe a mystery for later. Uh, the ravens that come there every night. Interesting. What's that all about? Is that one theory I have is that it's related to the same thing happening with Bran. Bran's consciousness is sort of drawn towards his home. He goes to the Winterfell Heart Tree. Is that maybe what Blood Raven's doing? He's drawn back to this raven tree because it's his home. Problem with that theory, though, is that apparently these ravens have been coming to this dead tree for well before Blood Raven's birth, let alone, you know, his quote-unquote death. Uh, he was born in 175. And it sounds like these trees have been coming, I mean, these ravens have been coming to this tree for way longer than that. But maybe Bran looks through this tree also, if he can. I mean, it's a dead tree, so I don't, know, I don't know how that works, but maybe he can. As far as the negotiations go, I'll talk about Jonas Bracken just for a minute. I'm going to compare him briefly to Brown Ben Plum, that the loyalty of sellswords versus the loyalty of lords. And it's, it's the lords love to denigrate sellswords, but when you really get down to it, there's not as big a difference as it seems like. They're all mostly out for themselves. And I don't even necessarily mean that in a selfish way. I mean, they just want to survive, right? They, they, they put their own lives first, which is rational. There's more, more lies told about the honor of these lords, about, oh, they, like, for example, this thing with the Blackwoods, like, yeah, there was honor in lasting that long, but part of it was just stubbornness, right? And here, some of the same thing is going on. Bracken wants rewards for turning on his liege lord first. It's like, yeah, but we came to your side first. And, and they get into this kind of philosophical discussions like, well, what, who's more loyal? The guy who fights us longer? Because <laughs> he stayed loyal to who is his, his, the first person he swore to? Isn't that person more honorable? Shouldn't we trust them more? Even though you switch sides sooner? Isn't it because you switch sides sooner that we should trust the Blackwoods more than you? It's a really interesting dive into what loyalty really means and what honor really means and how a lot of it's kind of bull. <laughs> it's kind of 
And of course, it's great that this comes out through Jamie, who is one of our viewpoints, one of our most important windows into all the contradictions of high that exist in within the cultures of the high nobility of Westeros and other places too. There's so many contradictions and, and hypocrisies. And here we're seeing some of them play out through these negotiations over who gets rewards. Like, are you you're rewarding them for being disloyal because they were disloyal to your benefit? Like they came to you, but still, how are you upholding these values in a society where honor is important? And you're also offering people inducements to go against their honor. Right? There's just so many blatant contradictions here. And usually these contradictions are hand-waved away. Like someone like Tywin, we would just be like, okay, we don't talk about the contradictions. We just accept them and we move forward. You bend the knee, you give us money, and you behave. Who cares about the hypocrisies and all the contradictions? You know, but Jamie's not, not like that as much. He, he actually debates these things and wants it to make sense but it doesn't. Especially when Jonas Bracken brings up things like, look, man, your people, you, you sent Gregor Clegane at us. You sent Vargo Hote at us. Like, what was I supposed to do? Not switch to your side? Like, you're going to call me disloyal to Rob Stark? You killed a bunch of my people. The mountain raped my daughter. Like, was I supposed to fight against that? Was I supposed to suffer more of that sort of thing? Yeah, like, there's no right answer here. And that is where we get to the problem, the core root problem here that explains why the Brackens and Blackwoods have never found peace. Within these contradictions and hypocrisies exists the space for this conflict to never fall off. There's no room for a true peace amidst all this uh, dishonesty. It's just uh, they pause, right? And Nina writes it really well. This is not a lasting peace. They're both starving. They both still hate each other. They don't feel like they were treated super fairly. There's hostages involved. There's nothing about this scenario that says this time it's going to work. <laughs> There's nothing about they're going to be struggling to have food. They may start fighting each other again because they need to survive. It comes down to survival, not like not greed. On one hand, we see how there's a lot of peace here and maybe there's some sense of things could turn around, but I think that's a bit of an illusion. I think overwhelmingly the things happening in this chapter are ominous because no matter how much little break from the war there might be, hanging over everything is winter and they don't have time to get more food. And Jamie, in the back of his head, he's thinking about how are we going to feed these people? How it's he's realizing it's his responsibility. Remember back in the Feast for Crows, he for a minute he's like, How is my dad gonna oh wait? It's my job now. They're, my dad's gone. I have to feed them. Uh-oh. <laughs> and you can even see this in the negotiations. The the bitterness between the two houses plays out even as they give each other, even as they give Jamie advice on how to screw the other, right? Take his daughter. He's gonna hate that. Or Give him the hot, give him honey tree and it's hives. It's going to rot his teeth. Like they, they'll take any excuse to get one up on each other. But there's a little bit, uh, a little bit under the radar there. The white elephant concept comes back yet again. What good is, for example, when he says, I'll give him a honey tree and those hives because it'll rot his teeth. He's, he's telling the truth almost. It's not the honey that's going to rot his teeth, but what the hell good are a bunch of beehives 
when it's about to be winter. They're worthless in winter, as far as I understand it. And the same goes for these other villages that he gives up. They're not going to produce food right now. They're a burden in the short term because they need to be fed. So Blackwood's like, yeah, take that. I don't have to, these are mouths I have to feed that I don't have to worry about anymore. Uh, Maybe I'll take those lands back from you back when uh, things are better. But you manage them now when it's hard. You pay the rent, the taxes, (laughs) pay the upkeep. We'll be back to take it from you later. So that's the, again, so that's the white elephant concept of, of giving a gift that you can't afford. And so it kind of ruins you. And I think that's sort of under the radar here with these negotiations. He's like, yeah, I take these lands. I don't, I don't want, I, don't, I have my pride. I don't want to give you, you know, the land where my forebears are buried. But ultimately, I can afford to part with some of these because they're actually a burden. Something else in the background here is Jamie thinks about Cersei quite a bit. He still has that mantra. It's the first time in a while, though, because, of course, we haven't had Jamie chapters, but he, his line, she's been effing Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and Moonboy, for all I know. We haven't actually seen that since A Feast for Crows, Jamie 3. So uh, as he's thinking about her again, he's starting to think about the letter and all that with her saying, I need you, I love you, and all that. And this is, comes alongside him starting to notice other women. He, I don't, he's not going to hook up with this Hildy girl that he finds with Jonas Bracken, but he actually takes note of her and is like slightly attracted to her or whatever. And he looks at her in ways that he doesn't usually look at women. And that's very telling because he's always been so loyal to Cersei about that, even as she's not. It seems like his discipline in loyalty is slipping a bit. And for good reason. I mean, <laughs> right? There's, uh, it's, I love this exchange. It's It's... It's funny, yet also kind of sad. And what is it you like in a woman, my lord? Innocence. In a woman, I said, not a daughter. (laughs) It's funny, right? But uh, (laughs) it's also kind of sad, like I said, because he does not think about Marcella. That's his daughter. And she is rarely in his thoughts. Sort of, it's a fair criticism of Jamie, even though there's this, you got to take into account this, this strange scenario where he's supposed to not pretend to be his mother. So or her mother. So it's all very odd. Also, he just knows Tommen better because he's a Kingsguard and he has to be around him and guard him. So he's just in his presence more while Marcella, well, she's been in, in Doran all this time. And really, Jamie couldn't be around Marcella a lot, even if he wanted to be. But also, this whole attraction business is a setup, too, for the fact that right, bef- right, before, uh, right after Hildy comes Brienne. Even though it's only for a moment, she's so... Awesome. We love Brienne. So when she shows up, even though we know she's going to show up, we know the scene is brief, touches the heart briefly as she touches the hilt of her sword, which is a really meaningful uh, gesture, very symbolic because he thinks about it. He's like, oh, Oathkeeper. And the highlighting of this, as Joe writes, gives the evidence of how Brienne got out of that pickle. She yelled sword, which was one of her two choices. And of course, it's also a reminder of the promise to him, which is. Sad because Jamie's like, okay, she's trustworthy. I can trust her. But, well, she is trustworthy, but she's in a situation that Jamie might understand ruefully, which is in order to keep one promise, he has to break another. In this case, it's her. She has to break her oath to him in order to keep Podrick alive and herself as well, who, you know, she cares about herself less, but to save Podrick and all that, she had to to lie and break her oath. So, This is the kind of 
vengeance and payback that Jamie has just been talking about with Hoster Blackwood. He, they're talking about cycles of revenge and how, you know, there's always a, a deeper concession that prevents them from having a lasting peace. There's always something in the past or some new catalyst, perhaps because the past was never truly buried. So let's talk about the history a little bit and, and how these conflicting oaths play out a bit. Again, Tywin Lannister hangs over all this. Ty, Jamie makes a big mistake here. He misunderstands it. Basically, he points to his father's attitude. He's like, look what happened to the Reigns. Like, the Reigns don't bother the Lannisters because my father wiped them out. But Tywin wasn't justified in wiping out the Reigns. We're, we're basically talking about it as a last resort. You only slaughter everyone when there's no hope of peace ever. And the Reigns and the Lannisters weren't like some back and forth for centuries type of they hate each other forever type situation. No, this was a, a single generation problem. It was a generation that, a problem that came up during Tywin's father's generation and his own when he was young. It wasn't some long running feud that couldn't be resolved. Ditto the Red Wedding. That wasn't some long-running feud between Stark and Lannister. Tywin didn't go straight to destroying the Riverlands because that's what always happens when, you know, it's not like some fallback plan that here we go again. No, Tywin went way above and beyond what was necessary. And Jamie's falling into the trap of thinking that worked. He's not, he's not realizing the net effect of that, even though he's aware of it. It's like he's not making the connection in his head that all this famine that's about to strike the Riverlands is his father's fault, right? It was not necessarily Sari. I think Jamie on some level thinks, well, we had a war. Of course all this happened. It did not have to go this way. It did not have to be so bad. The Riverlands did not have to be completely torched for the Lannisters to win this war. The offshoot of all this, Jamie specifically notes that his father's hand in, in this destruction and all this but he's not realizing how much hatred that's sowed. Yes, the crops are gone, and in its place are the, the seeds of hatred. He destroyed the capacity of the Riverlands to exist, you know, as their subject post-War of Five Kings. They aren't capable of surviving without Lannister help now, and the Lannisters aren't capable of doing that, probably. So it was very much self-destructive on Tywin's end, too. Uh, if Tywin had survived all this, he would have been suffering, struggling rather, to make it all work. By suggesting that Blackwood wipe out Bracken or Bracken wipe out Blackwood, he's learning the wrong lesson. He's not realizing that destruction is not a solution so quickly. It's only a solution. It's only a last resort. But for Tywin, it's a first resort. It's the first thing he does. And, well, that's his strategy, but it's evil. <laughs> so there's a moment where Jamie has a fond memory of Tywin when he's talking to his Hoster kid and has a moment where he's forgetting what Tyrion does. He kind of falls back into old habits. But again, the shadow of Tywin hangs over all this. He's thinking about before the rebellion. He's thinking about, or during the rebellion, rather, before the War of Five Kings, I should say, when Tywin had these kids killed. And because he's talking to, about children and having, you know, well, in order to, for Blackwood or Bracken to wipe out the other, it would involve killing a lot of children. And how can you ever have the, you know, the upper hand in terms of honor and ethics when you've done something like that? 
Jamie perfectly expresses Tywin's point of view at the end of the chapter without realizing just what makes that viewpoint so wrong and so self-destructive, right? Obliterating an enemy, crushing anyone who stands in your way. It's the plan that Tywin has used many times, but we haven't seen... It's been so recent that we haven't seen the long-term how bad it's going to be, and Jamie doesn't realize that either. Another example of where this hasn't happened, the Starks. Right now, they might be wishing that they had wiped out the Boltons. <laughs> Maybe they should have wiped out the Boltons so long ago because clearly the Boltons are still uh, were looking for opportunities to get one over on the Starks. But it's an example of enmity that hadn't been resolved over countless centuries that one side still didn't wipe out the other uh, and for the most part existed peacefully together. That's why this is a false peace. It's only temporary. They're going to have, they're going to fight again. And until someone steps up and settles it for good, well, we're going to be right back to this again. So on to Penny Tree, they go to Penny Tree where some of the same lessons are expressed. Penny Tree is in better shape than most villages because it's, it's noted to be a royal fief, meaning it's actually royal land. And that's probably why they had stone walls there to hide behind. All these other villages don't have that kind of funding. There's a lot of cool off-page references here. Penny Tree is a very strong nominee for where the next Duncan Egg story is going to be. The Village Hero is the working title, according to George. And this could be the village, Penny Tree itself. It, st- it stands between Bracken and Blackwood lands, or has often. It's been belonged to one, then the other, then the other, one, then the other. And eventually it became a royal fief. And this might be the story of how it became a royal fief. But there's also some other hidden references here. It's neat that Hoster Blackwood is the one telling us all these stories with Duncan Egg vibes, and Hoster is seven feet tall, so is Dunk, basically. And Duncan the Small and Jenny of Old Stones might have their uh, meeting near this area because it's, it's somewhat near Old Stones. And if Pennytree was already a royal fief around that time, it would be a reasonable place for, them, for him to be if he's in that area, considering it would be royal land and he's the prince, <laughs> the, the heir to the throne. So there's definitely more on some of these stories if you want to check out our Blackfire series. The end of it has all the Bloodraven stuff. The beginning is where Aegon the Fourth is, and Aegon the Fourth is the one that had a Blacken, a Blacken, a Bracken and Blackwood mistress. Well, actually, two Bracken mistresses. And a lot of this stuff ties into that. And in fact, Duncan Egg is very likely going to deal with some of that too. So there's a if you're into Duncan Egg and Aegon the Fourth and all that time period, uh, there's a lot of richness there to be held. It's possible that there's BWB spies at the Raven Tree siege. After all, Brienne shows up pretty quickly after Penny Tree, so maybe they were keeping an eye on that. And it's an easy, somewhat easy thing to keep an eye on. As Jamie noted, they were getting slack on the siege. The siege had worn on for so long, discipline was starting to fall. One suggestion comes from our friends over at Radio Westeros, shout out Radio Westeros, that Hildy herself, the girl with Jonas Bracken, could be a spy for the Brotherhood. Entirely possible. But if not her, there's other candidates that maybe were off page. Makes a lot of sense given the timing of, of Brienne finding Jamie. John 10, A Red Wedding with No Deaths, aka How I Married Your Magnar. It's the third and final wedding of A Dance with Dragons. There's been so many weddings in the books, but just staying in this book alone, the first one was brutal. The second was unhappy. And this one, well, it's actually pretty happy. It's a pretty good wedding. As Joe writes, George is throwing us a bone here. And it's a different kind of wedding, though. It's unusual. Uh, it's a mixture of different things and cultures. And there's a lot to like about it here. Here's the first line. 
Relore, sang Melisandre, her arms upraised against the falling snow. You are the light in our eyes, the fire in our hearts, the heat in our loins. Will you sing that now, Aziz? <laughs> Says she sang it. <laughs> you are the light in our eyes, the fire in our hearts, the heat in our loins. Yeah, thank our- you. I really appreciate that. That was better <laughs> than I could have even imagined. <laughs> I don't think Melisandre sounds like that, but it's it'll do. <laughs> And it's really apt, right? Because this chapter is something of a light in the dark. For once, Relore actually kind of comes off that way as, a, as, a, as a, the flame pushing away the shadows. Because <laughs> this is one of the happier chapters we get. It's a fascinating scene, too. It's, it's full of symbolic richness. It's wide open to interpretations. This chapter alone, there's a lot of ink spilled on this chapter, interpreting it in a variety of ways. And just the beauty of it. The feedback from you guys on this chapter from our different social media platforms. It's just overwhelming. Just so much love for this scene. So much love for Alice Karstark. Yeah. A real happy, like it says, it's a real light in the dark. Nina writes, it's one of the most beautiful moments in the whole series because it's such a unifying moment, fittingly given that marriages are one of the most explicit symbols of unity. The rancor between Stark and Karstark is symbolically undone because Alice Karstark would be Lady of Carhold is being married by a guy with a Stark background. And it's sort of repairing the breach caused by Rob's execution of of Rickard because it's showing friendship between these houses. The witnesses are free folk and Night's Watchmen who are, you know, not all the brothers are there as we'll talk about in a minute, but there's a lot of them there. And Night's Watch and free folk at the same party? That is a really big deal. Southern knights and northern nobles there too, including some older northern lords who are the kind that often are highly prejudiced against free folk and southerners, really. (laughs) So it's really nice to see this. It's a cross-cultural marriage. It's a sign of peace between peoples that have been at war for longer than anyone could count. As the Green Grace says, peace is the pearl beyond price. And though she's not super honest about some of what she means with that. It's still pretty true, right? It's still, I mean, you can't really have peace with slavery, but that's not really an association here. Not as directly anyway. Also, like uh, like I was touching on briefly, Nina writes the same, Relora and Reloraism actually displayed in a positive light, pun intended, but a religion, it's a religion that is does have positive association for us maybe in the future as a, maybe not as a great, thing to be a part of in terms of culturally, but as a requirement to saving the world, as a tool to stopping winter, it might be invaluable in that sense. Uh, The language Melisandre uses in her prayers are not just beautiful, but they emphasize R'hllor's role as a protector in this darkness. The stars that guard us in the dark of night is one of the lines. And she says the strength for those who have to walk through the, quote, black veil of night. Uh, they'll face this world's darkness together is part of the ceremony, uh, part of the wedding vows for this couple to uphold. And yes, yeah, so the language behind their wedding vows is very much speaks to the coming threat that faces all humanity. It's a really neat microcosm of that. I mean, it is still a political marriage, which we're very used to, but for once, the woman is liberated by the political marriage instead of tied down like Danny or Sansa or worse, like Jane Poole. 
Now, to be clear, she is forced into this, but it's a different kind of force. She doesn't, it's the kind of, it's the force of not having a lot of choices. It's the force of circumstance, of lack of options, rather, not the force of sword point, rather, like Krieg and Stark wanted it to be. It's not the kind of force of, you're a woman, so you have no say in it. That's what's trying to be forced on her by Krieg and Arnolf, and, and John realizes that Stannis, too, would force that on her. None of them would give much weight to what she wants. So in order to do the right thing, he's got to, well, again, he has to break one of his vows. More on that in a minute. First of all, why he arranges the marriage. It's not just about doing the right thing. There's a lot of pragmatism here from his own perspective. It's just really a perfect solution other than the vow-breaking part. Uh, For one thing, the Magnar is mad. At John, he still has this like "you killed my father" attitude. So he's behaving to this point, but it's not something that would go well if it's not addressed. It's it's a sort of Damocles hanging over his head. John needs to address the fact that there's 200 Thens who worship their leader, and that leader does not like Jon Snow. Has flat out said, "Why fight for you? Why not kill you?" Now he said that. There's no chance of peace between the free folk, the Fens free folk, and Jon Snow's black, black brothers. Other free folk are willing to join or be allies or what have you, but not this batch. So he's got to get rid of them one way or another. And he's not just going to have them murdered, for one thing. That's not what Jon Snow would do. Second of all, how would he do that? There's 200 of them. So this is a pretty darn good solution. It takes care of the car hold problem. It takes care of the ethical conundrum with Alice, gets the Thens, it makes them allies of an ally of his, if not a direct ally of him. And doing what he wanted to do in terms of facilitating alliances between the free folk and the North. What better opportunity than an actual marriage? Now there's other people sniffing around like Axel Florent and Sir Patrick. Sir Patrick wanted Alice for himself. Axel Florent wants Val. And those, those two are gross. We'll talk about them more later. But Sir Patrick, he doesn't bring any men. He doesn't have, there's not 200 Sir Patricks to help Alice fight for Carhold. So that aspect is, he doesn't bring that to the table, but Stannis might've given her to him if uh, he had been around. So he can't afford to wait. But beyond that too, it's, it's in Stannis's best interest. John is pretty much on Stannis's side. Let's be honest about it. He's sometimes trying to skirt the line, but He knows the Boltons are bad news and he's very much chosen to fight and help Stannis over the Boltons even as much as he uh, tries to technically say he hasn't. It's not really true. Even this move is very much pro-Stannis, anti-Bolton. He doesn't want the the Karstarks to get Carhold, the the ones who were going to betray Stannis. And he sends news. He says, he he tells Stannis, look, the the Karstarks are going to betray you. He's blatantly interfering. I get it. I would do, I would have probably done the same. But if we're looking at it from the perspective of his other officers, the other Night's Watch brothers, there's no argument that John hasn't broken his vows several times from a technical perspective. And Alice herself before the wedding, this is one of the reasons people like her so much. She is brave. (laughs) She's confident. She almost reminds me of the Red Viper before dueling the mountain. Remember? He's like eager. He's like, I can't wait to fight that guy. And Tyrion's like, really? You can't wait? You're eager to fight that guy? Like, wow. Now, this isn't a fight, even as many times as weddings and marriages have been described that way. 
No, she's ready. There's this great line from John. You're not scared? The girl smiled in a way that reminded John so much of his little sister that it almost broke his heart. Let him be scared of me. Yeah, that does sound like something Arya would say, doesn't it? <laughs> That's so cool. Sounds like something Liana would say. Too. Yeah, very true. And those vibes are there. In fact, we're about to talk about that. But first, yeah, she's marrying someone from a completely alien culture. She's joking about it as she does it. She's not, uh, she's not just putting on a brave face. She seems legitimately unafraid. Uh, this guy is, like we said, a god king amongst his men and has 200 warriors. And she's about to just be amongst them. And <laughs> facing all these different challenges and new scenarios. And she's just like, nah, I got this. This is no problem. John also, you know, he's thinking a little bit like a politician. He's like, hey, can we count on you in the future? Send us some, some young boys to join the watch, you know, when the time is right. And she's like, you got it, Jon Snow. Carhold remembers. Yeah, she seems like a decent person. So it's also like making a deal with her, counting on her as a supporter of the Night's Watch in the future. As far as the health of the Night's Watch, wouldn't you depend on that more than Cregan Karstark, given what we've seen from him or Arnolf? Yeah, like, I think so. Not to say that everything's going to go smoothly for sure, right? We do not know how it's going to go. Let's not get our hopes up too much. Sigourn could turn out to be a brutal husband or bad luck could befall them and retaking car holds and things could go wrong. Winter could just... I mean, there's a lot of ways that could go wrong, right? So we might look back on this chapter as not so happy after all once we know the fates of all these characters. Not knowing leaves room for optimism. Even if it does turn out badly, though, this is still a light in the dark. It's still a reprieve for the characters. They still feel that. That's still real. The hope is there even if the hope doesn't pan out. It's still a portrayal of people making productive choices when the options are limited. It's still showing that strength amidst so much danger. It's a good wedding, right? People enjoy themselves. Bride and groom seem to like each other. So I don't actually think Sigourn is a brute. I'm just saying we don't know him that well. Uh, the wedding makes him look pretty good, but power can mess with people. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, one line that troubles me a little bit is when he swears, it's written as, quote, the Magnar's promise was a white cloud in the air, which is, I mean, that's condensation from the heat in his breath, but it was written that way on purpose. Like everyone's breath is doing that. It's winter. They're all like that. <laughs> so uh, I wonder if that's saying his promise is as strong as vapor, which I hope not. Wind and clouds aren't exactly signs of permanence. Uh, this line also could be foreshadowing, quote. The snowflakes were melting on her cheeks, but her hair was wrapped in the swirl of lace that Satin had found somewhere, and the snow had begun to collect there, giving her a frosty crown. Her cheeks were flushed and red, and her eyes sparkled. Winter's lady, John squeezed her hand. Does she realize what a cultural milestone she's part of here? Does he? I mean, it's such a big deal. This, this marriage is, they may look down year, at it years later and say what an incredible accomplishment it was. And yeah, more Alice Liana paralleling. Winter's queen there, or Winter's lady. That is, there's some Liana vibes there for sure. And this, these promises and all that, yeah. But more specifically, to allow Alice to escape her unwanted marriage, Rhaegar's son has arranged her wedding to a warrior prince uh, when her kinsman Cregan comes looking for her and confronts John, demanding her back from Rhaegar's son. He's imprisoned on John's orders, along with his accompanying riders. Just as Ares II had done with Brandon Stark and his companions after Brandon came to King's Landing to confront Rhaegar, 
It's even more neat than that. A- after one of Cregan's men is killed, John thinks that left four. And Cregan himself and Brandon had also had four men with him going to King's Landing. Ethan Glover, Kyle Royce, Albert Aaron, and Jeffrey Malister. Three of those were killed, actually. Uh, Ethan Glover was not. John even considers killing Cregan as, as much as Ares did Brandon, though he decides against it, given, you know, I mean, Lord Commander executing a Karstark is pretty rough, politically speaking, even if he arguably had deserved it or earned it. It helps the parallel between Alice and Liana even more that they're both daughters of men named Rickard. <laughs> Alice's daughter of Rickard Karstark, Liana's the daughter of Rickard Stark. They both had three brothers and their fathers at one time, Rickard, their Rickards, both tried to arrange marriages to them, to Lord Paramounts, to heirs to great houses, right? Rickard wanted Alice to marry Rob Stark originally before having to pivot. And of course, Rickard wanted Lyanna to marry Robert Baratheon. So look at it this way. One wanted their daughter to marry Rob and the other wanted them to marry Robert. (laughs) They have this neat part of the ceremony where they leap the ditch the fire ditch while holding hands. And it reminds me a little bit of Danny jumping the fire with her silver back in the Game of Thrones, which is yet another reminder or vibe of past marriages that we've seen. And of course, the symbolism of them becoming one during that jump is uh, not to be missed. Melisandre blesses the ceremony in the name of Relore. It's a real ice and fire vibe there because Sigourn himself is standing by the fire decked out in bronze, very much a picture of an ancient northern warrior, uh, dressed more like a something out of the first men era than than something in the time of Andals are around. So is this, is this a good sign? Is this a sign of balance? Is the fire and ice dichotomy mean that it's going to work out? Or is it the kind of thing where we've seen elsewhere that fire and ice wipe each other out? They don't work together. They, they're canceling <laughs> factors. A couple other guests to make take note of here. Some elder clan chiefs that were too old to go on Stannis' campaign. I, I mentioned them earlier but it's notable that they're attending a wedding where there's free folk because a lot of these old Northern Lords, older ones especially, uh, have a very long-developed prejudice against them. So it's uh, good that they've either aren't of that type or they've set it aside. Again, I mentioned the dancing. <laughs> so like, wow, there's people dancing. That is just so unusual. <laughs> it's like, you know it's a sign of, good, of, of a light in the dark when people are dancing. On the dark side of things, though, there's more a prejudice towards satin we see here. And Joe Buckley asks uh, uh, an important but ominous question. What's going to happen to satin after John stabbing? There's so many people that don't like him. Someone might take a, a stab at him too while the chaos is out there. I hope not. John again predicts Sir Patrick's coming desire for blood. Of course, he has no idea how stupid Sir Patrick is going to be <laughs> in finally making a choice on who to attack. He's like, I could attack Satin. I could attack this guy. But no, I'm going to go after the giant. Whoops. In terms of downsides. Yeah, it's a huge violation of John's vows. As good as it is for so many reasons, uh, there is this. It's just not what a Lord Commander is supposed to do. It's blatantly against the rules. As correct as it is ethically, it's letter of the law wrong. And couple other things that we have to criticize, even though we like the wedding. Well, they're short on food. Can they really be, can they really afford to have even small feasts like this? Yeah. 
Maybe, maybe I don't know how much food was actually eaten, but it's another thing that doesn't look great. On the other hand, they're getting rid of these dens. 200 dens are taken off. So that's a lot fewer mouths to feed. But uh, you know how these guys are. They're going to look at the downside. They're going to point to, they're going to stick to their prejudices and, and not be optimistic. So this is all fodder for conspiracy against John. They're going to point to him wasting food, him breaking his vows, him friendly with free folk, arranging marriages. Lord commanders aren't supposed to do that, right? This is all, hmm, they have a lot of ammunition for their, their anger now. And, don't, and take note, Bowen Marsh did not attend the wedding. He's one of the men that stayed away, and that's ominous. Melisandre reminds him, she's like, dude, keep your wolf close. That, my sense of the danger to you is getting closer, and he's just, he's just not focused on it. He's like, yeah, I know they don't like me. I know I'm doing things that make them angry. But he's more concerned about Stannis' reaction to this. He's more concerned about what's going to happen with Alice. He's just not thinking about himself as much. And we should be worried about that. Is, is there a chance Alice's marriage will be overturned? It's a marriage in the light of R'hllor, which a lot of people can object to. It's a marriage overseen by a Lord Commander. A lot of people can object to that. Not to mention the political implications of people like Cregan Karstark, who might find a way to nullify the marriage if given a chance. Of course, he's against it. We have to wonder what's going to happen to him. He's thrown in an ice cell. John argues with him, tells him what's up. He doesn't back down. Okay, you're going to stay in this ice cell then, dude. But John's going to be stabbed and Cregan's going to still be in the ice cell. So what's going to happen there is another thing to think about fallout from John stabbing is that Bowen Marsh and his buddies could just let Cregan out and Cregan could take their side because, well, they're against John and he's against John. So I'm not saying Bowen's going to ally with Cregan because then he would be breaking the vows he's trying to uphold. Although that could happen. Uh, he might find it necessary. Uh, so a lot more potential for different players to get involved in that chaos afterwards. Uh, interpretation of laws, big thing here, right? The semantics of the different laws. Of course, like I said, John is clearly breaking the rules in some places, but he's also able to get around some of the other ones by meeting Karstark on the road, right? They, they go south so that when Karstark arrives, he can't ask for guest right. And that's kind of similar to what we just saw with Lord Manderley openly discussing guest gifts. And it's like, hey, I gave them guest gifts before they left. Hey, hey uh, you can't call me for it. So basically getting around the rules, but properly. Now, he really is getting around the rules here, but unfortunately not other ones. But there's some irony there. Nina points out, John's like, your father's a Castellan, Cregan. He, lords can't make marriage pacts. What Cregan should have said was, Neither can Lord Commanders make marriage pacts, bro. <laughs> you can't do that. Who do you think you are? King in the North? Maybe he will be soon, but he's not right now. <laughs> Actually, maybe he can claim that. He's like, technically, I was already King in the North. I just didn't know it yet. But the will was already written. <laughs> it's like, more semantics could come into this. Technicalities. John needs to get a law degree, I'm telling you. John, speaking of saucy comebacks or, or uh, sneaky maneuvers using language, there's a couple of good quotes here. Here's a brief moment when Melisandre takes note of Patchface. Melisandre's face darkened. That creature is dangerous. Many a time I have glimpsed him in my flames. Sometimes there are skulls about him and his lips are red with blood. No wonder you haven't had the whole poor man burned. <laughs> yeah, so John's like, yeah, if you're scared of Patchface, why haven't you burned him, Mel? 
it's perhaps meant to distract us from what might be a pretty legitimate threat. From Mel's perspective, I mean, I don't think Patchface is going to run around killing people, but he might run and kill her or try to because she's going to be the one most likely that burns Shireen. I do believe Stannis will give his consent first, but she's, of course, going to be the one that, you know, runs the ritual. And Patch, that's Patchface's best friend there. Patchface loves Shireen, as far as we can tell, so he might be pretty pissed about that. And as far as her seeing skulls around him, we just saw this in Mel Saunders' chapter. The skulls came up a bunch of times in her visions, and every time it seemed to be a symbol for the undead, which Patchface might be undead, right? He was at sea, like Davos style, for several days, but he came back with a brain that wasn't quite right, unlike Davos, who seemed to come back pretty normal. But Davos wasn't actually floating in the water for three days. He didn't wash up ashore with a body that felt like a corpse, according to the people who touched him, which is the case for Patchface. So watch out, Melisandre. And Patchface gives this famous line, under the sea, the mermen feast on starfish soup and all the serving men are crabs. That's another one I threw out to all y'all. Another one I got a wide variety of interpretations on. I'm not even going to bother with my own because I don't have one that I really like. It's a, this is a tricky one. I think this is going to be one of those ones that maybe when it's all said and done or maybe just after the winds of winter, we're going to be like, oh, it's this. It's, it might be George has given us the riddle or the answer, but he hasn't given us the riddle yet. We don't know. We don't have all the information. I, don't, I, think that's one of the, I think that's where we're at with this. We don't know what this means yet. It hasn't become clear yet. It's where we still have to wait. Because again, this is one I, you guys gave me a wide variety of interpretations. A lot of them I think are solid. But the fact that there isn't wide agreement on it, there weren't like, oh, I like that take. I like that take. Just a bunch of different takes. <laughs> so to me, that says the fandom isn't terribly united on this one, which also says to me, we probably haven't figured it out yet. Or if we have, I can't tell. I don't know how to tell. So let's put that one on the shelf. Back briefly to danger to John. We were talking about Patchface might be a danger to Melisandre. Melisandre, of course, saying, keep your wolf close. Well, she, he, too bad he doesn't. How close is the danger, though? She's like, it's very close now. This is chapter 50, and it's going to happen in chapter 70. So 20 chapters from now, John gets stabbed. This is John 10, and it's going to happen in John 13. A great quote from our Facebook friend and real friend, John Hagee, who says, John throwing such shade, he could shadow bind him. <laughs> Check out this quote. Alice Carstark leaned close to John. Snow during a wedding means a cold marriage. My lady mother always said so. He glanced at Queen Solise. There must have been a blizzard the day she and Stannis wed. <laughs> John's on fire funny, with the jokes, yeah. this one. <laughs> That's really good. He does think of Solis a little bit. Solis isn't in this chapter too much, but he notices just how devout she seems and how devoted to Melisandre she is. Like, he thinks, man, if she, Melisandre was like, hey, walk into the flames, she'd do it. Which is, to me, that's foreshadowing the Shireen business because Solis isn't going to be asked to go into the flames, but asking your daughter to go into the flames and your mother is worse for a lot of mothers. Like, no, I would rather go in the flames and see my daughter do that. Almost any mother would do that. Uh, so this is kind of that same symbolic uh, acceptance of, of that dark future that's uh, in store for them. And of course, the overwhelming symbolism behind Melisandre's visions continues as we saw it from her perspective. Now we see when she's talking to John that he's asking, did you see Stannis in your flames? Did you see Mance in your flames? Did you see this? And she's like, snow. Stannis, snow. Mance, snow. Joe argues that this is actually an accurate vision. 
Because, yeah, Mance is snowed in at Winterfell. Stannis is even more snowed in at the Crofters Village. It's like, actually, yeah, that's pretty accurate. That is what's going on. So, yes, there's this whole, oh, she's seeing Snow, capital S, John himself for Azor High, but she's not accidentally seeing John when she looks for Mance, right? So that's more direct when she sees Snow from him. And that's uh, very telling. So it's like, well, is this a wrong vision or is it perfectly accurate? I kind of lean towards that because, yeah, (laughs) they're snowed in and that's what she's seeing. Here's one that's just real funny. It's, it's like, come on, Melisandre, you're so close. She says, Stannis is the Lord's chosen because he's born amid smoke and salt and Dragonstone is the place of smoke and salt, blah, blah, blah. And John's like, but Stannis wasn't born there. <laughs> and he, she's like, oh, don't worry about that. <laughs> Who was born on Dragonstone, that smoke and salt during an actual storm? Who actually raised dragons from stone? Hmm. No one. It's no no one Daenerys. No Daenerys is possible. No, yeah. So Melisandre's the day Melisandre learns that Daenerys exists is gonna. I hope we have that from her POV because it's gonna be like she's gonna be like her eyes are gonna be like. <laughs> what have I done? John also discusses uh, discusses the Fens a little bit with Alice as an aside here. We should mention that how they're different from the rest of the Free Folk. They're more like Northmen in a lot of ways. To me, it's a bit of a nice little dichotomy. We've got the Fens are sort of the, the northerners of the free folk where the Blackwoods, last chapter, were the northerners of the south. So that's kind of neat little parallel. Uh, I should maybe do a little more digging to see what else the Fens and the Blackwoods might have in common. That's pretty cool that these two things are back to back like that. Hard home, we get a little note on hard home. The, the, sail, the ships have sailed. John's a little worried about Sir Glendon being in charge at, Eastwatch, because Glendon was a friend of Alistair Thorne and Janos Slint. And while Cotter Pike is on those ships with soon it's going to be dead things in the water situation, those ships might be screwed. So Cotter Pike might die out there and then Glendon would be in charge. And well, that's not good for John. So something to keep an eye on there might even be maybe one theory is that Alistair Thorne shows back up over there instead of back at the wall with his other two rangers that he went with. Although it's really been a long time now that those other six rangers have been missing. So the chance of those six coming back are not great. Alistair Thorne may indeed be a white by now. The new house sigil. That's cool. That's not something we get very often. It's pretty neat to see a new house formed, a house then of Carhold, basically. It's a bronze disc on a field of white wool surrounded by flames made with wisps of crimson silk. It's a really good symbol because the Carstark sigil itself is a, a white sunburst on black. So these two sigils have a lot in common. They work together. Really does a good job of describing visually what's happening here as a cultural milestone, as a combining of different ideas of different cultures and all that. I like it a lot. Really good. There's another just excellent detail work here in this chapter that really fills out the whole vision of, of what's going on. When I think of marriages in A Song of Ice and Fire, those sigils are so important because culturally speaking, North and South both make a big deal out of that. So like when I'm imagining like on the TV show, seeing these weddings, see those wedding cloaks, it's something that my mind really goes towards and that really helps me visualize this. Because it's, it's harder to imagine what these people look like, even with their descriptions. There's so much room for 
your own version of interpretation, but these sigils are a lot more clear. Like the descriptions are so much more distinct. It's, it's, there's less interpretation possible here. So I appreciate some distinct visuals to lock onto. Uh, another really random note here, good catch by Nina. The Flint great-grandmother that John references here, because he's talking about his own family. He's got a Flint in his own family history. Is Aria Flint, which is uh, probably who Aria is named for. And that Arya Flint was married to Roderick Stark, who was known as the Wandering Wolf, who was once a member of the Second Sons a long time back. And he's the mother of Liara, who is the wife, was the wife of Rickard, the Rickard Stark. Yes, Rickard Stark married his own cousin, kind of like Tywin did. And that, from that union came Brandon, Ned, and Lyanna. Okay, a few thoughts from y'all. Dornish Dame says, in some ways, Mel wedding Alice to Sigourn using R'hllor traditions makes me think of Visenya wedding another Alice, Alice Haraway, to Magor using Valyrian marriage rites. Thank you for saying that, Dornish Dame. You know what? I actually thought the same thing and forgot about it. So you picked up my mistake there. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, the, the idea of fiery marriage rites, it also makes us think of potentially what happens with Rhaegar and Lyanna off page because if they're using the Targaryen exceptionalism rule, then they may have not had uh, the marriage under the light of the seven. They may have, because why not? I mean, that, that would be under Targaryen exceptionalism, that would still be allowed, but they may have used a different uh, set of vows. So, but this is more certain. We know for sure Magor used the Valerian rites here. So this is perhaps a better comparison because it's, it's uh, for now at least, we know it happened where the other is just a guess. Harry and Karstark is mentioned and his fate is mentioned or alluded to. He's still alive, though. As far as we can tell, Alice and Sigorn will show up there and sort of have temporary control. Harry may very well survive and come back to Carhold. And if so, it's his. Uh, he may yet die. He's still in captivity. It looks like he's at Maidenpool. He may have been transferred to King's Landing because the as Jamie told the phrase, remember, they're trying to collect a lot of those captives. Jamie ordered the phrase to give them the great John. It's like, yo, you have him in captivity. We want him for ourselves. Whether that's actually going to happen or not, who knows? As far as we know, they have not yet acceded to that request or that demand. As far as we know, the great John is still in captivity at the Twins. He's not been sent to King's Landing yet. So we'll see about that. But this is a similar sort of idea where this character is kept in the South, kept hostage, if they ever get let free, it could change some things politically. But it might also be the case of they're still in prison when King's Landing gets blown up and they just die because of that. Could be that simple and that horrible. Tree Girl with a great catch here. The quote, rusted hinges screamed like damned souls when Wick Whittlestick yanked the door wide enough for John to slip through. That is him going into the ice cells to talk to Cregan. He sees his reflection in the ice cells. For one thing, that's a really ominous because it's certainly one of the main major theories around John stabbing is that he's going to be put in an ice cell. His body's going to be stashed there, which would be why he can see his own reflection there because he's about to be there. He's about to be among them. Wick Whittlestick opens the door for him. Wick Whittlestick's one of the conspirators who stabs him. Rusted hinges screaming like damned souls. Okay, brings Euron to mind. And Aaron, poor Aaron Greyjoy's trauma from his childhood as Euron would come to abuse him at night. Damned souls, though, that also sounds like second life almost going into a white or just being animated as a white and the others are controlling you and ruling you, which would, that's a pretty good way to portray a damned soul being ru ruled by um, a magical 
undead being. That is a rich symbolic sentence. Thanks for catching that tree girl. Keep an eye out for more things like that. Archmaster Rennie gives us a nice hint to another reference outside of this story to one of other one of George's other works. There's a story called Bitter Blooms, uh, where George originally introduced the concept of old men announcing that they're going on a hunt with the intention of going out to die in order to save their family the burden of feeding them. That concept exists in the story Bitter Blooms, which is Dream Songs 1 or 2, I forget. Also in Bitter Blooms is the Blue Roses. So that's a really good one. Also, that happens in uh, the show Norseman. <laughs> yeah, you can watch the, the pilot, the first episode, and uh, I think you'll appreciate what they do with it. It's, Norseman is a full-blown comedy, by the way, if you didn't know. It is hilarious. There's it's on 18 Netflix episodes. in the U.S. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if, especially if you like the show Vikings, this is like a comedy. It's like they, they make fun of a lot of the things that happens in Vikings. They make fun of battle scenes and like, how do you know what side you're on? You know, things like that. Like, <laughs> How do you know? Yeah, like, how did they know? Yeah, one of the guys like, I just kill everyone that's around me. It's like, if they're facing this way, I kill, you know. <laughs> it's really funny. So I highly recommend Norseman. If you guys do watch it, please come to one of our social media platforms and tell us what to think of it. It's one of the many things you can discuss. It's not just about a song of ice and fire. We try to have fun with a variety of topics. This chapter ends with Tormund's arrival. He's a big part of the rest of John's chapters of which there are three. We finish this batch of chapters with John and we will next week as well. So John's, uh, you know, him and Danny are really huge the rest of the way. Although, of course, Danny actually is going to take a break because she's going to fly off on Drogon next week and then we won't see her for a while. Her place will be taken by Barristan. Last week we covered 100, or two weeks ago, we covered 172 minutes, 52 seconds. This week it's almost the same, 169.07, about three or four minutes shorter. We have crossed the 2,000-minute mark in the Dance with Dragons, just past it, like 2,006 minutes, basically. Still more than 900 minutes to go in the book. We're just past the two-thirds mark. Two-thirds would be 66.6. We're at 68.6. So there you go. As usual, you can check the podcast version compared to the video version to get an idea of how much each episode gets edited. You may prefer the more laid-back uh, jokey version of the video. You might like the tighter, edited, fewer ums and uhs and pauses and coughs version of the podcast. Either way, please leave us a review. Give us an upvote, a like, a subscribe, all those different things. You might be surprised how much that helps us get picked up by the algorithms. And if you like it, if you like what you're seeing enough, if you spend a lot of time with us, maybe it's time to sign up for Patreon. You could do that by going to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros and find the level that's right for you. We've got lots of bonus episodes if you go, plus access to our scripts, other things like that. One thing you get as well is scripted episodes early, which as of this recording, it is, what's today? It's the 10th of January. Um, pretty soon, we're going to have an early episode release, scripted episode with the Giants. So not a bad time to get involved. Either way, we appreciate the support in any form it comes. Thank you for coming live if you did so. And we hope to see you in our different groups or on Twitter or wherever you can interact with us. We mentioned a few different scripted episodes this time, a couple of which have been coming up semi-regularly, like Battle of Ice and Battle of Fire. Those, those have been foreshadowed almost every chapter in the North and in Essos. Recently, our Weirwood tour episodes seem to be coming up a lot. There's lots of Weirwood action, lots of patterns to understand and dive into and have fun with. 
Blood Raven comes up constantly, of course, so we'll shout him out again. We've got three full episodes on him. Aegon the Unworthy is our first Blackfire episode, so if you haven't gotten into our Blackfire series, it's a good time to start. We rearranged our podcast feed, so that's the first episode you see. And of course, at the beginning, we mentioned our Blackwood episodes, one and two. Those are co-written by Joe Buckley as well. Next time, four more chapters. The only time in all of Valar Regis Dance of Dragons that we're going to have two chapters from the same character in the same week is going to be next week. We're going to have Daenerys 8, a Dornish frog in the dragon pit, a.k.a. a feast for foes. Theon 1, Jane, Jane, it rhymes with airplane, a.k.a. Big Walder won't grow up to be afraid. And Daenerys 9, the one in Dazdak's pit, a.k.a. Dazdak. Dazdak. Daenerys 9, the one in Daznak's pit, a.k.a. How to Train Your Drogon. And John 11, packed in black, a.k.a. the one where Shireen is unclean. Mm, yes. So that'll be fun. Good chapters. A couple people taken off. Danny on a dragon, Theon and uh, Jane, straight down into a snowdrift. <laughs> a couple of those titles you need to sing for us. <laughs> Pack in black. Yeah. <laughs> Big Wilder, don't let your baby grow up to be friends. Ah, perfect. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thanks to Joe and Nina for their invaluable assistance. Thank you to our mods over on History Western's Facebook group and in our uh, Discord server. Much love for y'all. Thanks to you all who participate over on Flick as well and uh, Slack. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and the maps you see behind. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Revitas music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the History of Westeros regular theme music. Thanks to our Benjineer for the excellent sound work and assistance. Thank you to our patrons for making all of this financially viable. Looks like Here Be Dragon is covering The Expanse episodes four to six tonight. And Ashea on Fandom Media will be covering episode six of The Expanse probably Monday night. Looks like around seven Eastern. Keep an eye on Fandom Media for when those Expanse episodes are popping. Ashea and Kyle are doing that, but the uh, start times have moved around a little bit. Yeah, we move it around because we just want to talk and have fun. So check it out afterwards if you can't catch it live. Either way... And we will see you next week for more Valar Uweeks. <laughs>